Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! listeners, I apologize. I am running a little behind today. I was just at the salon getting my bright red highlights applied. (laughs) And I just, you know, it went a little over time. I don't think she totally understood what I wanted. First I said micro bangs and she said no. So we've settled for red highlights. What do you think? They're beautiful. (laughs) My imaginary (laughs) red highlights. I've dreamed of these highlights. I dyed my hair fire engine red inspired by a specific look that was done by one Courtney Cox. We love her so much. But guys, I mean, I really don't think we have to say a lot about this episode because we recently covered the first Scream and I have to say the response was like, shockingly enough, pretty big. Like a lot of people got really excited that we covered Scream and I didn't really think that was going to happen at first. What about you, Troy? Oh, I knew it would. I I, I'd Scream for crying out loud. So of course people are going to just flock to anything Scream. I know, but I, sometimes I feel like you like horse it, like you beat the dead horse to a point that there's nothing left. Well, that's what I said at the beginning of the episode. The Scream was a film that I would have I, when we started this podcast. I told you specifically, I'd never want to cover films like Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Carrie, Scream, because they've been talked about to death. Like every gay podcast, horror podcast out there has done Scream. I think we did it really well, though. Not that they didn't, but I'm, I'm glad we covered it. You know, um, it's a film that was, I think as filmmakers, we've discussed this. It was super important to both of us in our, in our filmmaking kind of careers. Uh, and so I'm really glad we're getting the opportunity to cover Scream 2 because I have sort of a, I don't know how controversial it is, but I have a, a, an opinion about Scream 2 that might ruffle some feathers because I, do you want me to say it now? I will. I think, I think there's a reason to say it because I think that, you favor this title. I'm just going to, I'm going to say you really love this movie a lot. And I think our special guest today also holds it in high regard. And I think knowing that you guys are both coming at it from the same big gay angle makes for a very tantalizing, titillating conversation. <laughs> well, my, my opinion is I think Scream 2 is the best of the, of the oh franchise. God, taboo. <laughs> I like it better than the original. I get it. I get it. I don't know. I'm not going to say I necessarily agree, but God, do I fucking get it? Because this one definitely takes it and it cranks it up like full voltage. Like everything you got from the first screen and they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We know it worked in the first movie. Let's just go way bigger. And they do it with a lot of flair. And speaking of flair, <laughs> I would love to proudly announce our next guest. We have been getting some real good gays on this show. Quality gays. And this one is is one of the best of them. When we're talking about gays who love the genre, who know what the fuck they're talking about. Guys, 
we've got one of the masterminds behind Scream Queen, the documentary that everybody needs to see because it is beautiful and it is moving and it is as powerful as, as just a queer documentary as it is on something that touches on the horror genre. It covers a lot of bases and I think it's very moving and I think it took a really expert team uh, to bring it together. And we have one of them tonight talking with us about Scream 2. Everybody, it's Tyler Jensen. Hello, everyone. That was a lovely intro. Thank you. I get that every time. <laughs> and I get, I'm so proud of it. I'm just going to go. I've never been it. referred to as a good gay, so you're already. A fine with... gay. <laughs> like, like, oh, I've been like... downgraded. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh, my God. No, but you know what? Honestly, you, I think there's a few gay creators we've really wanted on the show since it kind of was a conceptualized. And I'll say, like, for me, you are one of them because this whole time we've been watching your project just kind of take flight and get all of this attention. And when I say I've been watching it from the beginning, like I genuinely have been tracking Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street since as long as I can remember it being around. Um, I was here in Cleveland when you screened it at the Cleveland International Film Festival. And I Our loved it so screening. much. very first <laughs> Very first. And I know it was changed a little bit since then too. I think right, right. you guys went in and you went, yeah, but I loved it so very much that I canceled my plans afterwards and immediately came right back to see it for the next screening because oh it God. made me feel so much. I cried as an HIV positive man. I felt so many feelings as a gay man who loves horror. I felt so many feelings and it's just like the palpable raw energy I felt from it was electric. And I think you guys made something really amazing and beautiful that needs to be seen. And would you just tell us a little bit about that experience and where it can be seen so our viewers can get the fuck on it. Right. Get yourself a Blu-ray player, a DVD player, get it streaming on Shutter. You can download it from iTunes. You can watch it on YouTube, but you better pay for it because if you find an illegal stream, send it to me so I can make sure it gets taken down and I can get paid appropriately. No, all kidding aside. Uh, thank you so much. That was a really uh, great uh, intro. Obviously, for those who don't know, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street is the documentary me and Roman made about Mark Patton, the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, quote unquote, the gayest horror movie ever made. And I like to say that it's the gayest horror movie ever made and the closeted star whose career it ruined. And that is all you need to know going in. If you've never seen a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, if you don't know who Freddy Krueger is, everything will be explained to you and so much more. So much more. So much so more. So much more. It, it, very much so. And I have to say that Troy and I just had the privilege of, at the Houston Horror uh, Film Festival um, the other weekend, of hosting, co-hosting the Scream Queen panel they did. And Mark was on that panel. And I basically took it over. I was like, let's just talk about Scream Queen. So like, which really was like my peak interest. Um, which I'm sure he loved that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> even when he did, even when we weren't talking about it, he was like, give me that microphone. <laughs> like, he, <laughs> he is he had so some good. To say. I love He's him. Got I love him. Crowd control that I've never seen before. And it's always emotional. We followed him for like years to conventions, to uh, one-off shows across the country. And I thought, well, when I started this project, I met Roman. He said, we're going to go do this. I was like, I am part of this. You can't get rid of me. Just let it happen. And I thought it was one thing. And then I finally meet Mark and I listen to the stories people tell him about what the movie means to them. And suddenly everything shifted. And it, he, it wasn't just a movie about the gayest horror movie ever made. It's why this particular movie that had such a negative reputation 
became something more important to a certain demographic of people who never saw themselves in anything, let alone anything that was popular and accessible. And I like to illustrate this point because we weren't making queer movies, especially queer teenage movies in the 80s. If you were a queer teen and you saw yourself in anything, however problematic it was, you like cherished it. And I love the fact that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is a gay movie for queer people to hold near and dear to them without explaining it to anybody else. For as anyone knew, if you were renting Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you were just a regular boy who liked horror movies and your parents didn't think twice about it. But you secretly were like, oh my God, there's rear nudity in this movie and I don't have to hide it from anybody. Not just that, there's rear nudity as someone's getting fucking beat up, slashed across their back in the most homoerotic position possible. Right. So there's right. a lot of that. There is. But I think there's something really valuable to build off of what you just said, Tyler, which is the idea of just like gay horror fans in general, like the connectivity that we have in that many of us found solace or found like self-identification in a lot of the characters we took away from these films, even in female archetypes that we saw, the strong women that rise up, because many of us relate to those figures that we get in some of these earlier films, the strong women that rise up against the odds and, and are able to overcome. And what is the LGBTQ uh, uh, community in general the one thing we do is constantly overcome. We're always overcoming nonsense. So I think that's what draws us to the horror genre in general. Then to give us a story that very much reflects someone who we see in the same light, that we see represents us directly, that's still rare to this day. So to have that film with those homosexual undertones that really cannot be denied, but also knowing that the actor that played that character was a, a self-identifying queer man, that does give it some extra heft for us. Um, and there is this huge amount of relatability, I think, where we can kind of wrap our arms around that title and consider it something a little closer to home for us, you know? Right. And I definitely think what drew me to the story of what Scream Queen actually became was not necessarily the Freddy Krueger angle. It was the fact that, like, here is a movie star. He is starring in this movie. He's made his big break. He's worked his way up from Broadway with Cher, Karen Black, Sandy Dennis, in a Robert Altman movie right after that. He gets his first starring role, and then he's never heard from again. Like, it didn't make sense in my head. And unfortunately, it's because I'm a generation younger, I didn't quite understand what it means to be gay working in the 80s in Hollywood and how specifically Nightmare on Elm Street 2 coming out, I think a month after Rock Hudson dies, that like everything is different. And unfortunately, not much has changed, even though it looks like it has. There, we do have out and proud queer leading men, and yet there are still more people who are not as free to be themselves and be successful working actors of that ilk. It's still something that when somebody comes out as their true authentic self, it's considered to be so brave. It's always how brave it is. And like, and like, yes, yes, it is because you're risking the potential of not getting certain roles or having your career be kind of um, defined by it still. But um you know, to the masses, it's still a brave, a brave decision to be out and proud um, within, honestly, like any major, any career, like, let's be real, it's still lauded um, 
or shunned, depends on what side of the spectrum you're looking at. But um, I, I think that it, what Mark did with this project and what, you know, he did through your team um, and his willingness to be so open and so transparent, I think, you know, it, I think it's certainly late, but I'm happy that he's reser- uh, receiving the recognition and appreciation um, that he's had coming for so long. I know there's so many gay horror fans who are thrilled to see him at conventions, excited to see his next project, see what's coming for him. So I think this project obviously was what opened the floodgates for him. Uh, and yeah, I just thought it was really beautiful. Um, uh, listeners, if you have not, if you've somehow avoided seeing this documentary, it's on goddamn Shutter. Like, what more, like how much more available could it be? But yes, go it's buy Blu-rays, Shutter. go buy DVDs. <laughs> we just put out a Blu-ray this year with all this extra bonus content that's never before seen. Hours, hours of content. There's a full soft shoe number with you and uh, Roman just doing a whole tap number for the crowds, right? You have never seen acrobatics like this. Let me tell you, the hoops I jump through, the heat that arises. I was going to say, man, if you and Roman ever went off and did like a home like remodeling series, I feel like you guys are the perfect duo to be like, we're taking this sad house and we're making it sassy. And like, It's not Trixie Motel, like- it's Trampy Motel. <laughs> All the rooms don't have doors. <laughs> Open air, everything. Uh, oh God. You should have seen it. We were roommates during the creation of Scream Queen. And it's a testament that we're both still alive to tell a story. Roman said to us how you guys would recreate dialogue from Angel just to get through some of the more uh, strenuous moments, which I think is very beautiful and a sign of a Can strong Can I say friendship. the F word on here? I, I'm, look, yes! Which one? Okay. <laughs> all of well, them. Well, <laughs> all of my favorite ones. I don't know. I use the gay slur pretty liberally, and I yes. realize that most people are still prickly about it. And I'm like, but it's for us. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't say it in mixed company, but... My favorite line from Angel does include that word, so you'll just have to find it. <laughs> I think we mentioned it on the pod, didn't we? Recreate the <laughs> yeah, line I think we're going to recreate it. <laughs> right, right. Yes. <laughs> faggots, well, faggots, faggots. They're everywhere. They're here. They're you, with you now. <laughs> can't die on me. You owe me $147, faggot. It, yeah, and I'd have it no other way. I prefer it with the slur, personally. So. <laughs> Susan Terrell. Everyone should go look at all of her movies. She should have like 12 Oscars. She should have won for what's that? Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Come on. God, that was that was a discovery in quarantine watching that for the first time. We're Uh, we're bringing Tyler back for that one. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get through that one, we've got to get (laughs) we've got to get through the task at hand. And it's a big fucking task. But I do think it's a big task that three gay men can appropriately handle. Troy, I'm going to let you take the mic for a second because I've been really wordy with this one, and I know you love this title. So I'm going to let you give it a proper lead-in. Share with our listeners your thoughts and your feelings on today's title. I, I'm not going to unload all that at once. I'm going to unload it as we go through the movie. I, I, you know, That's I have to right. take my time on. You can unload how you can edge us. Edge us slower. <laughs> But I- <laughs> because there's there's so many there's so many specific elements of this film that I really think are honestly brilliant, and it just 
Uh, one thing that it just it boggles my mind that this film was like rushed into production. I mean, it came out, it was filmed, uh, went through pr- post production, and was out less than a year after the first. I mean, it, it was rushed, and you know they they dealt with the script leaks. They had to change the script, and I still think that this came the the way that this film came out. Does it have some minor pacing issues? Of course, it's almost a two hour film, but there are several just like brilliant commentaries. Uh, that we're ahead of its time and, you know, rushing right into the opening scene with Jada Pinkett and Omar Epps who are in a, who are in line for the slasher movie, very blatantly talking about how uh, horror films have excluded African-American elements and that the black characters usually get killed first. Very wink because what happens in this film, I, I love the whole concept of the, the film within a film that we get in the opening scene. I love the chaos of the opening scene. And I will tell you, I, I, I struggle between whether I think the original opening scene is better or this opening scene is better, honestly. But we will get there. I mean, I, the love I have for this film, I have probably seen, this is the film I've probably seen the most times in my life. I saw it six times in the theater in a course of a week. <laughs> oh, wow. Were they ever double screenings in a day? Yes, I went. Yes, there was. I went with a friend like at four o'clock and then went with another friend like at nine o'clock that hadn't seen it. Okay, okay. You didn't like hide in the bathroom in between showings and then go to the perhaps directly after it. He put on a he put on a blonde bob wig and then he went in disguised as a different person. <laughs> I mean, Very you're allowed to see a movie Graham. twice. You don't need a disguise for that. <laughs> Unless you're trying to hide. <laughs> Just to make it more mysterious. Suddenly, it's a Brian De Palma movie. <laughs> I'm, I'd be, I would be fine with that too. I would be fine with that, Tyler. Um, get when you hear Scream Two. When you hear it, you know you selected the title, and you selected it without knowing of Troy's dark influences. Um, so when you thought of Scream 2, what, what comes to mind when you think of this title? Before we start delving into it. Let me let me just bring you back. Pep's on the set. Make you get hot, make you work up a sweat. Okay, this, I saw all Scream movies in the theater. I was lucky enough, I snuck in at 11 to see Scream 1 when it was re-released in theaters. Like it had been a runaway success. They brought it back. I saw this in February and within... Nine months, we had Scream 2. Ten months, so I saw both movies in the span of a year, and I was there opening night of Scream 2. I was in seventh grade. My older sister took me to the theater with my best friend. I was wearing a ghost face costume with a plastic knife running around the theater because I had read the leaked script online. I knew what was coming, and I wanted to be part of that chaos. My sister was so embarrassed. She's like, why, why, why? However, this is a pivotal theater cinema experience of my lifetime. It was nothing but high school kids being rowdy, talking back to the screen. It is everything that I have wanted to recreate as a filmmaker going forward. Oh my God. I think that right there, like what you just said, when I watch Scream too. I, I look at that and I think if only I could capture so much like joy and put it into one piece of film. Like there are so many 
hilarious moments. There are so many iconic, like suspenseful moments. There are so many great chase sequences. There are so many great fashion choices. The the wardrobe evolution for these characters. That crushed <laughs> blue velvet denim esque jacket. Get me one of those. That's a good fucking look on that that Sydney wears. Can we mention this film? Probably. Well, I'm not gonna say probably. This film has the best cast of all of the films. I mean, I mean, Portia de Rossi, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Rebecca Gayhart. I mean, even Joshua Jackson, Tori Spell. I mean, come on. Luke Wilson. Fucking uh, Lori Metcalf. That's all I need to say. Lori fucking Metcalf. (laughs) Debbie Salt. Aunt Jackie. I I could tell you when I first saw this movie, you know, I was a big Roseanne fan. I know it's problematic now, but I, I still think Roseanne seasons one through four are probably some of the best television sitcom ever to be put on screen every halloween i'm watching those halloween yeah. specials as i'm carving a pumpkin so imagine my little gay delight when i saw fucking Lori metcalf get to go berserk in a in a like you'd never seen her do something like that before it was just those big old white eyes oh my god full crazy i appreciate this now as an adult now that i've watched enough films to know what they're commenting on i didn't fully get all of the william castleness of that opening oh yeah theater sequence just with the stab of vision with the uh ghost face on a zip cord flying back from the screen but in keeping with that william castle tradition he was i think most his his biggest gimmick was getting joan crawford in his later movies which i think is directly related to glory metcalf in the big finale you're like oh oh this is what we're playing with I love it. I love it so much more now as an elder homosexual than I ever did as a preteen. Yes. There's a lot of little lines and little blips in that movie that are just pure dripping in, in foreshadowing. Like when Randy is talking to Dewey about, or Randy's talking to the group about uh, who the killer could be. And uh, someone mentions Hallie. And, he, and I think uh, Dewey says serial killers are statistically overwhelmingly male. And Randy's comment is, not necessarily look at Mrs. Voorhees. She made a terrific serial killer. And who is Lori Metcalf channeling in the final act of Scream 2? It's definitely fucking Pamela Voorhees from Friday the 13th. <laughs> a same motive and everything. Lots of little clever cleverness that permeates this movie that I think it was way smarter than people give it credit for. I think one of the reasons this movie succeeds in so many ways is they realized, and yes, they went to production very quickly, but I think they realized what about Scream really worked. And aside from being a great slasher, it was the self-awareness of the first film. And they definitely cranked that up with this movie. They didn't take it to the extent of the third one. So it wasn't like excessive amounts. It was just enough of like being completely aware of what it was doing. Its goal as a slasher film uh, it's parody on like pop culture in general, that goddamn Tori spelling. She can't wait her, act her way out of a fucking paper bag. Her face is always changing, but I love her. I love everything about her. Every filler. I love it. Um, and just like, yeah, like Luke Wilson with those fucking bangs. Like it's so aware <laughs> of what it's doing, what it's spoofing, <laughs> when it's spoofing it. Because it's not always comedic. It wa- when it wants to be comedic, it is. But for every moment that is a self-aware, you know, comedic kind of spectacle, there's another moment that's genuinely terrifying. Gail's chase sequence through the goddamn sound studio. One of the best chase sequences of the fucking 90s, if not ever. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Well, well, I mean, 
It's good. Listen, I, I love me some Courtney Cox. But if we're talking about ever, you know what we're talking about. Helen Shivers? <laughs> exactly. I'm saying one of. I'm saying, we got Helen Shivers in this movie as well. So that has to be celebrated. Well, I think we should just get into it because we, we, we have a lot to say. So should we just start? Dig into the, uh, the opening scene at the Rialto Theater where Stab is premiering. I got to say, I think it's a very clever. I, I, I love the way that the, the Scream 2 picks up after the original film, but also brings in the Stab universe to the franchise. That was super, super uh, clever on their part. Uh, I love the theater. It's very atmospheric. I love Jada Pinkett's performance in this. She's super likable. I just love the chaos of of this opening scene. Right. I think this movie, especially especially the Scream series as a whole, taught me how to watch horror movies as well as it rewarded me for watching it. It taught me in the first movie that horror movies were best when you're hanging out with your friends talking shit about the movie. That was so influential to me. And then this, bringing it into the theater and realizing how fun it is to be terrified with a group of people, I, that's still the high that I, I live for. I don't like roller coasters. I like scary movies. I want to be in that experience. And the beautiful thing about this movie is that everything that you were expecting from the first movie, they throw it away. All the other sequels after this start with that phone call. And this movie absolutely does not. They're like, no, we don't need that. But the thing that I love Wes Craven for that is present in both of these opening sequences is the role of the innocent witness. In the first movie, Casey's getting killed. Her parents hear her dying on the phone. If only they were a little bit sooner, they could have saved her. Here you have an audience full of people screaming and cheering, not knowing that terror is happening in front of their very eyes. That is the real horror for me of this sequence. And it's rarely done better. I was, I was going to say, that's why I go back and forth about which opening scene I find the most effective. Because yes, it, it's, it's scary to think about being in, a, in an isolated house all by yourself and having someone terrorize you over the phone uh, and, and, and murder you, obviously. <laughs> that's horrifying. But then you think about Scream 2 and Jada Pinkett's death scene. Is it more terrifying that you're being literally murdered, stabbed repeatedly in front of a group of people and they are cheering for it? And they are excited because they think it's part of the act. Right. I mean, what's what's more unsettling? I think that being murdered in front of an audience and nobody's coming to your um, to your aid is quite disturbing. Well, there's even if you watch through the progression of the scene, like you see there's characters who are starting to become aware of it as well. And that's something like after like watching through it a few times, you see there's like a guy who stands up in the background and he's like. Does anyone notice this is happening? And it's not like, yeah, people are cheering it on because they really think it's part of the shtick. But like, you see the realization fall over the crowd. And the fact that it ends and it's completely silent and she's just she does it like that back bend and she like collapses and there's just this moment of silence is like kind of chilling because you know everybody's just like, oh, shit. And I think this opening scene does make it really clear because they did rush this into production. But Williamson did have a full kind of, design for what his trilogy was and it may not have turned out to be exactly the same as he originally perceived it but it's clear that there was a plan here because this the first film so like elegantly kind of transitions into the second movie in such a such an intelligent way like the 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 fact that they would take this 
monumental tragedy and make a piece of like pop culture cinema out of it feels so authentic. And I, I mean, it's just like, unlike anything we had seen done up to this point. And so when you brought that up, that they completely threw the first film's formula out the window and took it in this direction, again, that full self-awareness, it's right off the bang, you get it. And, and you don't know what to expect because of that. The fact that they give you this big overloaded opening with so much going on it's such a barrage on your senses even when you see maureen like step outside of the theater for a moment to go get popcorn there's still like commotion and buzzing even outside of the theater there's people talking about how awful it is they would make a movie about these real murders you hear the girls talking about it and it's just such like a big to do it really makes you as the viewer realize just the impact these murders had on the culture within the film personally the first movie is the most terrifying it's easier to disengage with this opening kill because there's so many people witnessing it. You're like, no one's going to notice. Like it doesn't hurt me personally as much as it is hearing her being dragged across the lawn over the telephone that her parents are listening to her parents being there makes that awful. And yet that isn't quite happening in part two. Overall, I think part two is so successful because it realized, oh, we're a fun, scary movie. We're not out here to ruin anyone's life by showing absolute horror and pure dread and despair. We're having fun. And there are certain music cues and editing choices that allow you to have fun, even though terrible things are happening. And I think that was a really smart choice. It's why this series has lasted as long as it has. And people can argue if it's scary or not. I'm like, this is exactly the movie I signed up for. And I'm giving my goddamn life watching it. It's just what it needs to be. This movie knows exactly what it is. I mean, it, it's so good at spoon feeding the, the viewer, like information too, to catch you up. Like on the movie screen, they take a beat and they're like, you do see in like big letters based on the novel, The Woodsboro Murders by Gail Weathers. So you know, like, Gail has been up to some shenanigans, as I prefer her. Like, she is out for herself. You know it right off the bat without it being, like, forced in your face. They're just really good at kind of, like, catching people up to where things are at right now within within the culture, within the film. Um, but yeah, I, I will say I agree with you, Tyler. The opening kill of the original Scream is truly terrifying to me. This may be more entertaining, but the opening kill of Scream is is something that, like, there are nights where I'm like, do I want to be alone in my house? I'm playing with the knives just to make sure that I'm, like, able to defend myself. I, I think of that to this day. This is more of a spectacle. I've always had a fear of, like, I, this is, I'm being 100% honest here. Ever since I heard of that story, that Kitty Gervais story, that the, the woman that was, like, brutally murdered in New York City. Keep talking. I haven't heard this. Yeah, all of her neighbors, it was like in the 60s, uh, she was stabbed to death on the street and all of her neighbors pretty much watched and nobody helped. And ever since I heard that story and kind of dived into it, I'm like, and, and we see it all the time. How many times do we see like or hear about, oh, someone on the subway got stabbed to death and nobody helped or someone was, uh, I always have this fear. Like you're, if you're not safe in a crowd of people, you're not safe anywhere. So I've always had this like fear of like being in a public place. And look at the mass shootings. You're not safe anywhere. So I, I always have this fear. Right, there was a mass right. shooting in a movie theater. I mean, Aurora Color. There have been multiple. I I was thinking of that today as I was re-watching the movie. And like, they could not have anticipated that this would be so prevalent in our culture. 
yeah, I guess if I'm home alone, I'm, you know, someone I'm already, I'm always, I'm on high alert anyways, but when you're in a public, you should not have to be on high alert like that. And so this, that's why I, that, that's a personal fear that I've always had. So to me, this film, the opening is a little bit more effective t- for me. I understand the iconicness of the original film. I love the opening scene of the original film. I think it is a definitely a should be studied in film class on how to build t- t- attention and suspense. But at the end of the day, I find the idea of just being brutally stabbed in front of a group of people and nobody's trying to help you very terrifying and saddening. And you can tell when Jada Pinkett's character, when Maureen dies and she looks out into the audience, that sadness that she has in her face to me is heartbreaking because it's like pleading. She, she realizes you guys, nobody's helping me. You're all just standing there clapping and there's, she's crying. There's a tear coming down her face. That is heartbreaking to me. So I, I give that, I give this opening a little bit of an edge just from my personal like fear, I guess. Right. It didn't have to go that hard. And it did. Oh, yeah. That that howl that she releases, there's this scream that it's it's like so like guttural. And that's really it does it does take a moment where it almost like kinda of takes your breath away for a second because you are caught up. You're almost like the audience. You're kind of caught up in like the mayhem all of it. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh wait, this this character we've been introduced to is now violently bleeding out before us and it does get really real really fast but it 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 does kind of lead to where we are now as a culture that's obsessed with true crime and we love tv shows about podcasts about real murder and we don't necessarily put all of our sympathies with the victims we want to glorify murderers and this is exactly where we are still yeah, there's a lot of victim blaming that happens in true crime. Have either of you seen, I'm curious, I'm kind of taking a little bit of a beat here. Have either of you seen He Knows You're Alone? No, but I I do know the trailer very well. <laughs> yeah, we talk about Kevin Williamson. I don't know how many times me and you, Roger, or I at least have brought up Kevin Williamson had to see this movie, had to see this movie because it's influence on screen. We talked about it with the character of Barney and Evil Laugh, and I know we've talked about it several times. I am willing to bet money. Kevin Williamson was very familiar with He Knows You're Alone. If you have not seen it, the opening of it, it's Tom Hanks' first movie. I think it's from 1981. It's about a killer who's stalking um, a a bride on her wedding weekend. The opening scene is, I don't want to say I'm just saying Kevin Williams had to see it because the opening scene takes place in a movie theater and there's two girls watching a movie and she ends up getting stabbed in the audience of the movie theater. So... Uh, oh, I'm watching this tonight. Yeah, it's it's a great movie, but I I, I I have to bring that up because I think the similarities are not um, by coincidence. Is this the one with the um, the aquarium reveal? Yes, the head and the. I, I have seen this one. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just give it away. Just give it all away. I, I was trying to be vague. I was trying to be vague. Okay, with the head with the head in the fish tank. Yeah, vague. Well, can we talk about uh, Phil's death? Like how implausible that is, but oh, it's fun. Not oh only God. implausible, but the f- it was a long time until I realized what a glory hole was or what this was implying. But now as an adult gay, I'm like, Kevin, yeah. sly motherfucker. I mean, I, I wonder if that was his little nod to Black Christmas, too, because of the voice in the next doll is saying things like, Billy, Mommy, Mommy, Billy. And, you know, I, I'm just saying, it's how would Ghostface know that Phil's head was in that exact spot? 
I mean, exactly there. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely implausible, but like, I think that's kind of their intention with that first kill, like bigger, like this movie is definitely like trying to make it clear right away. Like we're taking everything from the first movie and we're cranking it up to 10. And like the, these first two deaths are, are bigger. Right. This is, this is the fun. Now having seen this movie a million times, I'm watching the construction of the mystery. When do the things that are important to figure out what's going on start appearing? And at this point, we don't have, other than a theater full of people in ghost face masks, we don't really know. Oh, also, no one calls it ghost face in this movie, and I love that. No, you're right. Yeah. yeah. It's not yet become a it's thing. It's just the killer. It's just the killer. Which, when they start, I don't know. Anyways. Now, now he's in the bathroom, and that's that's when we're in a screen movie. Up until that point, we don't know what's going to happen. Really quickly, I was, I, one thing I don't like when I get pulled away from, because the kills in this opening are honestly standout. Even with his being implausible, it's still something where you're like, you see it, and you're like, oh, shit. Like it, You get a reaction for this character getting a knife through a goddamn wooden stall into his skull. Like, however the fuck that happened, okay, I'll take it. Let us not overlook the Hollywoodification of the Casey Becker murder sequence that where we get one Heather Graham in a soft tumbling, like Drew Barrymore-esque Bob, but like, it's so much more sexualized. There's a shower (laughs) sequence. Like if anything in this opening deserves some like real like spotlight, it's the decisions they made to both completely make it so much more like Hollywoodified, but also like you still get the popcorn shot. You still get these little shots that do feel perfect scream. Right. Wait, so you're you're telling me that Heather Graham was taking a shower while simultaneously <laughs> making Jiffy It's pop. so stupid. Oh my God. And like it's the shot stupid, of like the killer looking through like the, the glass roof. Like it's just so much bigger. You know, they took so many liberties. <laughs> I also love how they the, the whoever wrote the stab movies apparently was in the room with all these characters to know exactly what they said because it's virtually well based on the book. It's, but yeah, but Gail, Gail, how would Gail Weathers know what Casey Becker said to Ghostface on the phone? The same thing happens later when the, with the uh, Heather Grant, or the uh, Tory Spelling and Luke Wilson scene. How how would anyone know that dialogue took place? That is the fun of it, right? But this is why we're in a fun horror. They know we know that. Right. And I know that dialogue by heart. And when it's ever so tweaked so stupidly, my favorite line in this whole movie is, you know, I don't even know you and I dislike you already. <laughs> Have you, tell me you've used that on people before. I literally walked past Heather Graham on the street one day and it took every ounce of my being not to say that to her. God damn it. Because I will not be that person. Yes, you will. Oh my God. I, I will. If I ever ever see Heather Graham, I will deliver it on your behalf. I promise. It was not, it was literally just walking down the street in New York. It wasn't like, it was a comfortable place where you can be accosted by a stranger. It was... A lot of restraint on my part, and I want some recognition. She probably wouldn't even remember it. She'd be like, how dare you? And then you'd be like, it's Scream too," And she's like, oh, that's right. You know, <laughs> it would take her a moment to register it. God, I love it. <laughs> ageless. That woman is ageless. Anywho, so we get through this great screening of the movie. We have lost two characters. Two. Oh, I did want to point out the implausibility of the knife through the stall door at least has a payoff when he stabs through the front door later in the movie. 
So at least we're consistent with the superhuman strength. Where are they procuring these quality knives? Like, these have to be some (laughs) high quality grade A cutlery knives because they can cut through brick. These things can fuck somebody (laughs) up. It's pretty impressive. I got to say it. But you know what? They plan this shit out. This duo that we're about to discover is behind this. Uh, Anyway, so we get through all of this. The screening obviously becomes a big to do. One thing I really love about Scream 2 right away is it embraces the media outpouring of like this kind of traumatic incident and it just again amplifies trauma porn trauma porn like the news is so prevalent right off the bat is so everywhere all over this movie and it really makes it so that nobody can have like a moment of peace or heal like a normal person right because your tragedy is our entertainment and that that's the theme throughout this entire series so after the, after the theater scene, what who do we who do we get introduced to once again? Is Miss Sydney Prescott getting a phone call? So they do they do implement the phone call. It's just it, it's it it leads in right after the opening scene. So, but it's just a prank caller. What's your favorite scary movie? Corey Gillis five five five. Yeah, she's able to look at the caller ID. You know, prank calls are a, a what'd she say? A crime under the penal code. Blah blah blah. Right. But it's so interesting to now establish Sidney Prescott as this, like, I am not even bothered by copycat pranksters. Like, she's not this shrinking violet who's, like, experienced trauma. She's like, here we go. We're in we're in the blitz of a media cycle, so it's going to be annoying for a bit, but I'm going to get over it, and I don't take it too seriously. She's never been that, though, and I think that is why her fan base is so diehard. Sydney has always been resilience. Like, even in 3, where she was trying to, like, find escapism, it's not because she was, like, spiraling into insanity. She was just like, Jesus Christ, like, it's somebody stop haunting me. Like, can somebody just give me a moment of peace? And, like, we want that peace for her. And that's why Troy and I have talked about before the appeal of her not coming back for a movie. Every Like, I mean, as much as I want her, I want peace for Sydney Prescott. If any final girl deserves a moment of just calm, it's her. But I got to say, when- I'm going to save that discussion for when we get through this movie. Because I got some shit to say. I, I see it. I see it. Um, but I do think one of the appeals is right off the bat, first thing. Yeah, like she she has the, the caller ID. She's got this whole thing scripted down. Like you could tell this is not her first fucking rodeo. Like she's just taken every like all of the shit she's gone through and she's clearly grown from it and not only has she grown as a person her style's also evolved she has a sensible new haircut she's wearing a darker lip throughout the entire course of the film and her wardrobe is just matured i mean they it may they make it seem like she went from 15 16 to 21 22 like pretty quick but i like it i like the look for her i like the overall presentation. this is a butch makeover all right this is She's an ass soft butch <laughs> this entire movie you are not fucking with sydney prescott over the course of this film and you know it from the moment you see her like very earth tone palette like you know this woman <laughs> has been through shit but how shitty of a person do you have to be to prank call a, a girl that <laughs> witnessed all of her friends be butchered Right, but it does, it does, this is the, I love Scream and Clueless being very 90s movies, because when they came out, the reaction to things is so much different than it is now. Specifically Scream and Clueless, because Clueless, every kid had a cell phone, 
And at the time, that was hysterical. Like, oh, these kids are so rich, they all have cell phones. Now it's funny because, oh, my God, they have they use them as phones. They don't text. And when you rewatch Scream and the cell phone drops on her shoe, you're like, how dare you have a cell phone? You must be a killer. <laughs> it is such a big plot twist in that first movie, yeah. Right. But the success of Scream also catapulted this caller ID phenomena and the star 69. And suddenly we have all this new technology to deal with fucking weirdos who prank call people. Maureen even has that line during the screening where she's like, just hang up at star 69 is ass. Like, like, and it felt so relevant then. Like it really did have an impact. Right. And, and now children a watch young it. person like, is what? like, what does that mean? <laughs> oh man. But we're also introduced to her, uh, roommate and new BFF Hallie, the lovely Elise Neal. I, I adore this character and I have some things to say about how they how she was kind of just she wasn't done right. There was so much God room to expand it. upon this character. I mean she's a great character for what she is. Give me three more scenes with her. Give me three more right. scenes with Hallie. In an already overstepped movie. Yes. Like this is the problem when you have so many returning cast members is like they have to have proper art. Right. And any new character you get in a screen movie is not around for long. But you know what is one of the most, I think, interesting, appealing, and honestly, impressive character arcs in the sense of evolution out of everybody within this film is what they managed to do with what was a very, very, very minor character in the first Scream, Cotton Weary. The fact that he steps up and becomes not only like a focal character, but his storyline, which was very important to the first movie, but you never really got to see the man behind the incident. And now you have one Lee Schreiber with a very intense stare at all times. Oh, has he ever been sexier? Never, he's never been sexier. He'll never be sexier ever again. And he looks... So uh, you tell that to every woman watching Ray Donovan. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Noted and acknowledged Ray Donovan. But uh, no, I mean, honestly, he his cheekbones, everything about him, he's so fucking hot in this movie. And he's such like a shitty person, which makes him even hotter, kind of. Am I, am I wrong to say Is that? Is he shitty? Like, self, I mean, self he, he's of the Gail Weathers school of thought being like, I'm going to jump on this moment and capitalize on my notoriety and make some coin and also get my life back. He, he has merit. In this way, I feel. Very true. There, there is a moment towards the end of the movie where I really question his motivation and if he would have done the right thing if, in other scenarios. Like, I'm really curious, like, what the thought was behind, you know, the big the big final moment with him. Uh, but overall, like, shitty in just the sense that he is purely out for him, his own, like, better interest, his own well-being, and really nobody else's. But I do think another interesting kind of angle is I don't think he even understands the severity of what's going on around him. All he sees is his situation. He's kind of got blinders on, which makes for a really fun kind of character to throw into the mix in the middle of everything. I love that they managed to take this tiny little aspect of the first film and nurture it into this big plot point. It just makes it seem so well thought out. I, I do like the fact that they flushed him out for Scream 2. I, I don't know. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, it, it'd be curious to see how if the majority of the people think his character is shitty or if, he, they, if they think his character is like doing what he is owed. You know, he spent a year in, in prison because Sidney falsely identified him. And he's just, you know, trying to get his life back on track and get the 
the kind of the redemption that he feels he deserves through Diane Sawyer, probably not the best route to go, but I mean, it's $10,000 too. So, I mean, I, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Now he didn't have to act so aggressively, but we haven't got to that part yet. He's there because Gail led him under false pretenses. She's out here yes. producing her next book. And he's like, oh, I thought we had an exclusive rights. I thought we were going to do an interview. And she's ambushing poor young Sidney Prescott, who just moments before was defending Gail against Randy, being like, be nice. She saved our lives. Yeah. So after after we're introduced to Hallie and um, there is a, a random girl that comes in and she's very upset. She's like, oh, oh. Oh, Check out the, the news. news. I'm obsessed with the extras, the day players in this, it, particularly this movie. You have the girl at the theater saying, stab souvenirs. The studio sent them. Yes. <laughs> and then when she watches like them after they make that like that, that that sassy race joke, they like walk off and she like watches them like with a nod of agreement. She's like, oh, those <laughs> two. You know who else I really like? I think her name is Donna. She's the one that's in the house with Cece right before Cece oh, has right. kill scene. And Donna's got like two lines and she's like, so like, yep, I'm full of myself. I'm totally in this moment. Never see her again. Let that be the opening kill. It's your ill-conceived boyfriend. Give me Donna as the opening kill of the of Scream Six. Give me an obscure one. Give me Joel. <laughs> give, give me someone who's had little to no screen time and make it clear that that's for the fans. No, I am not on the side of fan service. I think y'all are stupid. You're you ruining movies for me you know I- <laughs> because you gotta have some fucking side character from five movies ago who had one line that was bad. Do you want to make a whole fucking sequence out of that? No. Not in my movie. Go write your own. You know who I really want to be the opening kill is that mysterious female blonde reporter that's in Scream 2, 3, and 4. She's like always hosting a segment. You know, oh, like you in mean this Nancy O'Dell? Yeah, Nancy O'Dell. Yeah, from I the want, infamous want... Access Hollywood tape? That's not a random. That's historic. <laughs> I want her as the opening kill so bad. I know they're not going to give me that. That would be oh, great. I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> She's in this though, so it's relevant. We do get Nancy O'Dell. And I forgot stuff, that. But I'm watching I'm it. And I was like, oh my god, 2016 is back <laughs> again. Not again. Oh my god. So they turn on the news. They find out that you know two two other fellow students were murdered, and of course, Sydney's right away is all. Freaked out about it, so she's going to find Randy, who is in a film studies class, where they are discussing whether movies create violence, whether the movies are to blame for violence. And this class is a hoot. You got Sarah Michelle Gellar, you got Joshua Jackson, you got Timothy Oliphant, you got Jamie Kennedy, you got them all in there. I was so excited to see this as a 12-year-old, being like, that's what college is like? I can't wait to go to film school. I am like dying for a chance to be in a room full of fucking nerds talking about aliens like that to me was beautiful watching it now in my 30s i'm like fuck all them kids all right shut up shut up please i i gotta say i feel like you know i think the first screen has the iconic fountain sequence that's like here they all come together these are the leads meet all the characters this film perfected it. And this film is the one that I think has set the blueprint of like, when do you have the moment where you kind of get like 
all of the exposition kind of dumped out. You meet a bunch of the prominent characters. And you kind of get an idea where the story is going. We've seen it in every fucking urban legend. We've seen it in every fucking goddamn motherfucking Cherry Falls. You know, like every film tries to capture this kind of like great witty banter between a professor and students. And this one just does it the best. It, it does do it the best. And you bringing up that fountain scene, I love these scenes because what it does so well besides uh proving how witty the dialogue is it shows the callousness of these characters talking about real life horrors because it didn't happen to them there's this like jokey oh it's just like a movie that i saw and killer could totally be a female basic instinct uh they put her liver in the mailbox like all those lines worked because that's how kids would talk about something as horrific as their high school classmate getting butchered to death. That is spot on in a way that we hadn't seen before, which I think is why this series is so successful. And what a smart choice to bring Randy back in the specific sequence. Cause it's just like, they, they, t- they take so many moments and they use them as like perfect moments to kind of build off of a character that we've already like kind of gotten a little bit of who that character is in the first film. Now we're really getting them like a three-dimensional version of who that character is. And one nice thing about this movie specifically is what it does for Randy's character, even though unfortunately we get to a moment that is a very sad moment that we'll talk about eventually. Up until that point, Randy is allowed to flourish, I think. And Randy... Uh, they, everything they do with him is great aside from his sideburns. The sideburns are very of the era. They're rather distracting. I will say this is probably his most attractive moment. Between this and the original Scream and Romeo and Juliet, like, yeah, okay. this is... Son of the Mask. I'll take your word on that. <laughs> no. No. Listen, as a man with a very strong nose, I appreciate like seeing Jamie Kennedy on camera because he has a very specific look. I feel I also have a specific look, really prominent noses. Um, And so I like seeing him on camera because I do find him attractive. Like at this point in my mid thirties, I would, I would smash Jamie uh, Kennedy. Absolutely. Even when he looks kind of donkey, like, (laughs) but I love what they do for his character. He's such like a source of wisdom. And especially in these scenes when he's talking his shop, like it's clear that if anybody in this fucking room knows what he's talking about, it's Randy. Right, and how we idolized him as a character and then grew up to be him, and then you're like, oh no, oh no, I should have aimed higher. (laughs) (laughs) But God, his wardrobe in this movie. Those jackets. Those fluorescent green, yeah, the shoes. To this day, I would wear it, all of it. They do have a conversation about sequels, whether sequels are inferior to the original, they try to outdo each other by throwing out names of sequels that, that are universally better than the original. So, you know, Godfather 2 gets mentioned, Aliens. I think I think what is people get wrong about the Scream series is like, oh, it's very meta. But the later movies only do it for horror. Like, these characters are pop culture savvy. It's not limited to horror movies. And in fact, it's everything else that influences what they're talking about. We get to micro, we talk about the worst of the worst straight to DVD slashers. You're losing the fan base, but if you keep it in the pop culture realm, you're having a better, better movie. I don't know. Well, and it's clear that like they, the cast that they picked, even for this specific sequence to have this conversation, the people in this scene alone, like is definitely a wink to the fucking audience. 
you know, because everyone in this, every major actor in this sequence has been involved with a horror franchise or a horror film in some way, shape, or form. They're also very much involved with pop culture. Like, the, like think of what was popular at the time: the Dawson's Creeks, the right. Buffies. Like, but, but this also, a, this was like season one of all those shows. Dawson's Creek had just started. Maybe half a season was out by the time this movie comes out. Buffy, maybe a year, but. These were just like hot, unknown WB stars. Now that the movie is so successful and, you know, they've done other things, we're like, oh, there's so many stars here. They weren't that way at the time. One thing I really like that, like, as this scene kind of exits into this next moment, you see Randy and Sydney kind of come together for this great, like, walking conversation. And I love that the camaraderie between these two characters after what they've been through, it's clear, like, their friendship has grown and strengthened. And again, if we're talking about things we would have loved to have seen more of, yes, it's a a two-hour-long movie. You can only do so much. But God, like, I love that they evolved a bit upon his, like, love for her, which he's vocal about in this. And, but also her appreciation for him. Like, it's very close that, or it's very clear that they grew close through their trauma. Um, And I would have loved to have explored more of that because they're great in these characters. Do you think that she got admitted to the college first and then he reapplied to go to the same school as she did? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> That's the vibe I got. I'm like, they don't explain that, but I'm just assuming he's that lovesick. He's going to felicity his way into Neff Campbell's heart. I do have to say, though, one thing I want to get your feedback. Out of all of the majors to give Sidney Prescott, theater major, like, is the last I would have expected for air. And, like, if I get why they did it. Yes, it speaks for some great set pieces. But if anything feels forced into this film, it's her being like, Yes, I'm a theater major, and I want to express all of my trauma on the stage. Like, I never, ever, ever pictured Sidney Prescott as somebody who'd ever want to be in that kind of spotlight, especially after the spotlight that's now following her and haunting her. Like, it just, it, that seems very forced to me. Not a fan of that decision. Right, because her personality is like shunning spotlight at all costs. Now she's starring in a major production which is not out of character for a lot of actors who do that for a living and then don't want to be seen, perceived in any way in public outside of that. She maybe has, you know, a love for art. Could be, yeah. I, th- I thought it was an odd choice for her major as well, Roger. So I'm right there with you. She got that leading role, so she must be pretty damn good. Honestly, I think... Her her big theater scene doesn't come until like the second half of the movie, which if I'm re-editing this, I put that scene sooner, even though we're not really in a chase moment yet. But had we had a theater scene earlier, we would have like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see why she would do this because it comes so late. You're like, wait, what? Why would, why, why would you do this? It really just feels like a set piece for the purpose of having a big set piece. And they're like, what can we do to make it make sense to take place here? Why don't we say she's a theater major? Like, that's how it felt. It didn't feel authentic to the character, but whatever. But you know what? For any complaints I have about where she is, where she's at in her current point in her life, one thing I will celebrate for Sydney Prescott is that she is being courted by the fawn-eyed and full-lipped Jerry motherfucking O'Connell. Has he ever looked better? Those lips. It's it's hard to believe he's the little chubby kid from Stand By. Those lips. You know? (laughs) He was the original Chris Pratt. 
with the glow up. Only without the ex- in extreme Christian beliefs, I like to think. Jerry O'Connell, is he... <laughs> he got his dick bitten off by piranhas. He's fine in my book. Yeah. yeah. We get introduced to the Derek character pretty quickly as poor Randy has just professed the fact that he wants to get the girl. The, the nerd's going to get the girl this time, so he goes out the door. They're talking. He He's very dismissive of the idea that it's starting again, you know, d- Sydney's like, it's starting again, Randy's like, no, it's not. It's just, ran, violence happens every day. This was just kind of a random act of violence. And then we do get introduced to um, Jerry O'Connell. And I don't know how you feel. Do you guys like the character or? I like it in the sense of how the stakes are played towards the movie and how you're constantly like, should I trust this man? He exists to be a potential threat. Uh, potential um, suspect. I don't know. I'm losing my words here, but yeah. suspect. Thank you. Yes, he's a red herring. He's meant to be both a love interest and a red herring, and he and the writers knew that we would lean into that after the original film because that was the blueprint that was set. So he has to be somewhat suspicious, but I don't think he's ever presented as being threatening enough to really think he's going to be behind anything. So you kind of just don't suspect him because he's so adoring of her um i do think he's one of the blandest elements of the film it's not that jerry o'connell's bad it's just like i could give two shits about that goddamn fucking cafeteria musical number like get it the fuck out first thing to go cut that scene however it is fun and i'm like we're, ha- we're having fun with this it's not too serious I mean, it's not too scary i guess but he's so bad in it that like I don't, which I think is endearing. It's endearing in the same way Cameron Diaz singing karaoke in my best friend's wedding. You're like, this is terrible, but we're on your side. So I, I do agree with you, Roger. I think that's kind of the issue I have with the Derek character is is the fact that he's obviously supposed to be a red herring. However, he's never given a, a moment where you uh, you're given any reason to suspect him. If you think about even like the Billy Loomis character in the first scream, he had several moments uh, where very well the audience suspicion was arisen because of little glances he gave or how he confronted Randy in the video store. So there were moments where we were like, oh, could he be the killer? Derek's character throughout the entire film is just super nice. There's never any moments where he has any like maniacal leanings or anything like that or does anything suspicious. All he does throughout the film is adore Sydney and just fawn over her. So I think they kind of missed an opportunity there um, because I never I, even when I watched this the first time, I I'm pretty sure I never suspected that Derek was one of the killers. Literally all Derek has over the course of the whole movie is glances like there are a few strategically placed glances with slight musical adjustments uh to the scores that they're like you could tell they're like he's maybe a red herring trying to like put it into our heads but that's that's it like that is all he has he doesn't have any like involvement or plot twists the only you know he has the moment where he gets stabbed and they're like that's too strategic you know, they do bring that up, but then they never really follow it up with anything. So it's just not enough for me to really suspect him. And I also knew, like, after the first movie, like, I don't think they're going to pull the same shtick again. So I think it was really hard to paint him in that light. And because of that, I do feel like he kind of falls by the wayside, especially as the movie progresses towards the yeah, end. Yeah, so uh, they run into none other than Miss Gail Weathers with her 
What an intro. Oh, she's looking great in this. You know, those streaks, the, that those that black bob with the red streaks. Come on. Uh, and she is <laughs> right away accosted by a Miss Debbie Salt, played by Lori Metcalf, who is just fangirling over her, telling her how much she adores her. And uh, Gail is just very dismissive of this. Well, woman. is it just me or did they not just after the first movie to decide that they were going to turn Gail's bitch a meter all the way up to like full voltage? It's amped in this oh film. God. She is. She has every right to be. She's written the book that is now the movie. She is doing so much better than she was two years ago. She looks great. And now she's got to like, now she's, you know, swimming with the sharks and she's got to stay afloat. So she's out for that second story. She's going to be the front of it, bringing Cotton Weary to Sydney Prescott. So she's all opportunity in this moment, and it's thrilling to watch. I love that for her character, but I do appreciate that as the series has gone on. This is one thing I have thought to be a positive. You can only take that chick so far before you really start to dislike a character. And they really, like, rode her character. Um, like, they kept her, like, on a really nice path where just when she started to stray into just being just too much of a bitch, they finally give her glimpses of humanity that really carry that character. And I think that's why she has so much of a love, like a lovability factor, even though she's, she's at times such a horrible person <laughs> and she's so self-obsessed. Like Courtney Cox does bring such a, like a, a human element to this. Like you said, like be a shark. That's a perfect term for what Gail Weathers is right now. She is a shark and she wants to be the biggest fish in the fucking pond. And you know that when she talks to one Debbie Salt. <laughs> I love this whole movie for her character, especially in these opening scenes at the press conference where she's training her cameraman to shoot her asking the questions, not the police chief giving the details because she is centering herself in this story. And especially later on when she's accosting people on the cell phone, they're like, who is this? She's like, Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders. Like, she does <laughs> not miss an opportunity <laughs> to make herself be a presence. She doesn't skip a beat with that sequence. I fucking love that moment so much. Oh, my God. But, yeah, I, I do love, like, the, the how cold she is to this fucking Debbie Salt. Not too long ago, Gail was amongst these peasants, fighting for crumbs. And now she knows that she is on an elevated platform and she has no time for any of them. And I do love that about her. Yeah. She attends the, she attends the press conference and she just takes front and center and starts to just bombarding this poor sheriff with all of these questions. And, uh, and then after this press conference, she sees Sydney and what does she do? She goes over to Sydney and uh, uh, very, aggressively tries to, I mean, camera and face and everything tries to force this meeting between her and cotton weary. Would you consider Gail Weathers a gotcha journalist in this particular moment? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It it bothered me. I will say it bothered me with this particular moment because of what Gail and Sydney went through together at the end of scream and for then Gail to come back a year later to Sydney's college where two people have just gotten murdered and then to do this to Sydney really seemed like a complete cunt move. Well, and you see it in Sydney's reaction too. Mm-hmm. You, you see like Sydney is 
very hurt by this. I mean, she gets a bitch slap in, as she fucking should. You always feel so <laughs> validated every time Sydney gets a form of physical abuse in towards Gail Weathers. It's so deserved every time, and you feel so good about it. But in this case, yeah, like, I, I, at the beginning of this movie, I'm disappointed with Gail. Because I would hope for there to be some female camaraderie after what they went through. And knowing the trauma that Sydney went through, even though, yes, she was wrong in her allegations towards uh, Cotton. She was wrong. She didn't know it at the time. It's not like she was being maniacal or out to hurt anybody. You know, she was a child. Um, and it just, I think it kind of sucks that Gail has not really learned from anything that she's gone through yet. I think eventually as a character she does, but not at the beginning of this film. But there is some good redemption arc here for her over time. Yeah, she does. Yeah, Sydney does bitch slap her for trying to force this whole Cotton and Sydney meeting. And of course, immediately, Sydney storms away. And who does Gail see? Dewey, who's just like standing there looking around like he's lost i i don't know it's kind of weird because when you see when you're first introduced to dewey he's standing on a sidewalk across the street looking like he has no clue where he's supposed to go or where the action is but literally right across the street from him there's a giant press conference happening and he can't see it (laughs) but she goes over to him and we find out even dewey wasn't safe from the gale weathers wrath because she wrote a bunch of horrible things about him in her book that he has memorized page number and everything right he took that to heart up to this point i do need to just pause and acknowledge a few things that we have missed because we have overlooked some very important pivotal things first of all we missed the line she had calf implants so that's already been established second of all we have overlooked the introduction of the sorority sisters led by one rebecca gayhart and a portia de rossi these girls have come into the picture at this point they are present they come back more times than they needed to but i'm all about it give these two gals a sitcom Give them a buddy comedy. If they're not in Scream 6, I am boycotting. Those are the two I need. Like, if I need any cameos, I need those two fucking dames, front and center. Um, And then they do have that line about some six degrees of Kevin Bacon sort of way, which I like to think that really is what catapulted that line into the mainstream. I know it's not, but in my mind it is. Uh, But yeah, when we come upon Dewey, you've mentioned this before, Troy, and I really want to kind of touch on something right here with how he's like introduced and how he's addressed as a character you've always said that you felt like dewey was like probably the most awkwardly handled character of the series um and and each movie he seems kind of like a different character and i've been really resistant to that because i like dewey i think he's very endearing um he's very well intentioned but he's definitely a heightened reality of what he was in the first movie which is obviously partially because originally he was not meant to survive scream so now you have this character who's a bit more exaggerated in general but then you add that goddamn fucking limp in and like i mean his one arm swinging he's like he's running like the hunchback of notre dame up staircases like it is a distracting character choice i am not always here for it um, I'm also baffled by how it then became more and more subtle with the with the subsequent films that followed. But in this movie, it's so present and it's at times distracting. His he's got a lot of face journeys in this movie as well, when he's deflecting his own uh, red herringness. That the glances last a little bit too long, and you're like, "Is this a comedy? Like, what's going on here?" Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of awkward 
editing choices at some points, but I mean, but he's still cute. I get what the intent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get what the intention of them are, but yeah, the Dewey character. Yeah, I mean, I like Dewey, but yeah, it's just it's. Uh, I feel like yeah, it was a character that they really didn't know what to do with after the first film because he wasn't supposed to be in any of the other films. So what do you do with them? How do you bring them back? And, um, you know, and just when you think the, the Scream 2 had the balls to to do something with the character, we find out once again that they didn't go through with it. They did the exact same thing at the end of this movie that they did at the end of the last one, like the exact same thing. It does feel like such a cheap out. But his character, for all of his flaws, like he is such a sweetheart. Um, I don't want to see him die because he's so concerned and considerate of Sydney and of Gail. Um, and it's nice to see, you know, we talked about many times before Troy with other films, how there are so many male characters, especially from this era, who are just stereotypical shitty men. Shitty men who do shitty things to women, who treat women poorly, who make sexual comments or grab them or do things that are just out of line. And Dewey is never that he's only ever thoughtful of people around him and for that reason like even with his flaws and his hiccups and his goddamn fucking limp um i still think he's so endearing and i, I really i i do feel for the character um and i'm i am bummed whenever he is injured well you know they have their little exchange obviously he's hurt with what she wrote in, in his in her book about him and he uh and she's trying to tell him hey it was just a character you have to you have to when you're writing Sometimes you just embellish things to make the, the the reading more enjoyable to the reader. And he's very dismissive of her and, you know, walks away from her. And then we have our Sarah Michelle Geller scene, which I think is handled pretty damn well. Uh, Miss Cece Cooper watching television when she gets a phone call. Right. Now, now we're back in original Scream territory. This is... The Casey Becker moment. She's watching horror movies on TV. It's Nosferatu. It is interesting that they did. I mean, if you if you were to compare this to any film, any sequence in the original film, this is the Casey Becker moment. They are giving you a uh, rather prominent actress from the era who only became more prominent afterwards and made this feel that much more impactful. Um, but you know, they're, they're giving you the Sarah Michelle Geller sequence, and she's. Fucking phenomenal in it, as she always is. This gal has not one, but two of the finest fucking chase sequences of that era. I mean, who else has that? Who else has that? Within two months of I each mean, other. seriously, this girl is the scream queen of the nineties. And I and uh I really think she is phenomenal in the scene. And as much as I would love to see more of her, I do think the fact that they they gave her that kind of shocking uh early kill it does still have the same kind of impact that drew's had in the original film you still feel that kind of level of shock because oh my god they would never kill the young starlet who's like so big right now like of course she's going to step up and be a prominent character no they do the exact same fucking thing and it's still shocking yeah i i really enjoy this scene quite a bit uh, there are some you know issues i have with the fact that the characters make the character makes really dumb decisions but other than that you know she gets the phone call she thinks it's her drunken boyfriend ted <laughs> you sound loaded yeah yeah you sound loaded ted and so she um so the, the calls just get progressively more obviously uh aggressive towards her to the point where do you want to die tonight cc 
and she's hearing noises upstairs and she's talking to her other friend on the phone and the friend's like, get out of the house, call security. So she gets out. She right. can't call because I love this. I love this. Yeah. Part. It's an old cordless phone that doesn't, you know, you can't have your cold. You can't have the phone. People, people that remember this old people that if, if you had a cordless <laughs> phone, you couldn't take it. You couldn't take it uh, far from the base before you lost reception. Exactly. And that's the, the we've already set up the fact that there are rules to survive and a smart person would do a certain thing. And you think that she's a smart person and she almost is. And yet her desire to call for help is the thing that leads her back into the house and then seals her fate. So it's playing against the expectation and it has a really natural draw back into danger, which I love. That that's the thing that you got to play with in these moments to keep it fresh and exciting. We all know what she should be doing and she knows what she should be doing, but she's not able to. Not only is this cordless phone iconic for anyone who grew up in the 90s, but in the moment she actually gets face to face with the killer, she's picking up the see-through telephone, which was every 90s kid's like dream phone that you could see all the wires and shit inside. It lit up when it rang. It was a must-have. Tyler, a few things about what you just said that I think are actually like really vital and I want to build off of. Uh, and also one thing I need to acknowledge, if for anybody listening does not know, that is Selma Blair on the other end of that fucking phone, which is just- You're lying. What? That's Selma fucking Blair. And like, come on, oh give me a 1990s homage. Thank you for being aware. Right. I mean, like Selma fucking Blair. Yeah, that's Selma Blair. Um, the way this plays out- A full out, year before know, they kiss? I know. It, uh, this is the lead up to it. That, I mean, the heating passion was- steaming from that phone it was frothing from it they knew they had to make out shortly after uh, but um no so, so so the whole thing with her being led back inside and then being distracted by that fucking donna whom i i need to see back i need her back and scream six come on give me one throw me one bone give me this broad but um you like how she's so like the way this character plays it off she's so like kind of careless and carefree, not even picking up on the element of danger that Cece is picking up on. So it becomes kind of disposable because Cece feels like this element of, oh, phew, okay, there's someone else in the house that explains why I've been hearing things upstairs. This it kind of explains everything other than the phone calls, but I'm kind of distracted right now. So I'm kind of like almost like not even paying attention to that. They play the scene out really well to keep her distracted. So when she is finally attacked, We've seen the killer sneak in in the background. We know he's in the house. She has right, no idea. Right. And that's that's like true Hitchcock tension and terror. We know something that the main character doesn't. And watching her try to figure it out and us waiting for the attack becomes the thrill and the excitement that the scene does yeah. so well. And I love even like her dialogue with Ghostface is like, it's, it's again, it is very similar to the structure of Drew Barrymore's scene in the opening film, but it's smarter. It's sharper. She's not uh, as willing to kind of like play that game back with him. Like she's like, well, why do you always answer every question with a question? She's call, kind of calling him out on his shit right off the bat. And I just like that you get this like stronger character who still inevitably meets her demise. But for a moment, you do think she's going to have a little fight in her, you know? Oh, I was going to say, she gets a pretty good little chase scene in when the, when the phone rings, that little clear phone rings and she picks it up. I love that the killer just bursts out of the closet behind her. Pretty effective jump scare. 
and she gets chased through the house. And of course, in in good old classic uh, horror fashion, like Sidney Prescott says in the first scream, she hates horror movies because it's always some big breasted woman running up the stairs when she should be running out the front door. That is exactly what Cece does. Runs up the stairs. Where the fuck was she? Did she think she was going? <laughs> I mean, she she runs literally to the like. Where did she think she was getting? She had to protection get her bike. For, she had to get her bike. A, apparently, because I'm like, why are you running upstairs all the way to the attic where you know you're going to be cornered? But she does, and yes, yeah, she's putting up some fights. She's throwing potted plants at, at Ghostface. She's rolling bikes down at him unfortunately is not it's not good enough because he does catch her up in the attic and throw her through that glass door and proceeds to stab her twice in the back before lifting her up and launching her over the balcony to her death on the pavement below very violent very violent this this moment in the film i feel betrayed because not only sarah michelle geller just been brutally murdered but they don't even allow her death to have an emotional weight we are immediately starting with an everclear music track transition while ghostface wipes the blood off his knife and i'm like oh we're not even going to pretend that we cared about that person is that actually everclear i just need to know oh it certainly is oh Oh, my god did i have the soundtrack for this movie and I listened to it. There's a lot of Matchbox 20-esque sounds coming from this soundtrack. I can get down with it, but I was like, wow, take me back to a different era. Because it definitely sounds of the time, but I do cherish that about the soundtrack. It's fantastic. Right. The, sound, the music in this movie is pretty trash, but I have to give them credit where credit is due. The first time we see a fraternity party, they're playing Dave Matthews, and I have never seen something so repulsive and accurate. Yeah, and this party, like, I, I don't even have a desire to go to, a, like, a sorority party in any way, shape, or form ever, even whether I, during my 20s or now, like, I just never, never would ever want to be there. But they somehow still manage to make it seem very enticing in its disgusting elements because these people are just horrible <laughs> and gross. But then you see Sydney and she's like, I want to get the fuck out of here. And you're like, girl, me too. If I was there, we would be smoking weed, like, in a corner somewhere. Talking about that goddamn blue crushed velvet jacket that I can't get enough of. Why does Hallie want to rush the sorority so bad? I, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem like they are remotely interested in her at all. They want Sydney because she's a celebrity victim. And they're really excited about that. But as stupid as this all is, it did introduce me to a new sexual act that I had never heard of before and have quickly forgotten about as soon as I did harmonica style is that wait so i just want to confirm is that when it is profile like if okay if i'm looking at a man's penis it's not facing me it's side profile and i'm just going back and (laughs) (laughs) right you're not putting the penis in your mouth you're just just fucking working it fingers and all (laughs) that sounds i mean i guess you know it depends it Depends on a lot of aspects, I guess, within the course of the evening, if we're going harmonica style. <laughs> it doesn't sound appealing. I would be looking down thinking some they were like trying to eat a corn on the cob or something. Yeah. It just doesn't... I do love corn, though. I will say that. Being from Ohio. No teeth. No teeth. <laughs> but yeah, these, I've never heard of that. But yeah. Um, yeah. So this, yes, the sorority mixer. And I love the whole, hi, 
I really mean that. Hi. I mean that. Hi. I, I do love that line. My friends and I say that to each other all the time. Rebecca Gayhart, I know that she has had a tumultuous life, but give me more Rebecca Gayhart. I could I could watch her do anything. I could watch her drink a glass of milk for 35 minutes elongated. Like it is just she's so she's got those big saucer plate eyes, that hair. I mean, like, I just can't get enough of her. I wish she had a bigger role in this. I love her in the role that she plays. I mean, both of them. Portia de Rossi is always amazing. But, like, I do feel a little bit gypped that these characters weren't just a pinch more significant. Yeah, they they kind, they kind of just appear and then we did get nothing from them after. After this scene, we don't see them again. That That's the, the problem of the whodunit. It's like you have to have plenty of uh, misdirection and red herrings. And they just fall in there. They're always around on the periphery and you never really get a good sense of why, but it does keep you guessing. What a good reveal would that have been though? What a good reveal. Good in the sense that like, that oh, that's camp because that's so stupid. For two killers. But, <laughs> right. But only briefly, I think. Satisfying not- to us gay men. <laughs> What would the motivation be? Like, why? I would need the motivation to be so fucking intricate, though. Like, I'd have to be sold on it. But you know what? We have seen Rebecca Gayhart pull it off at the end of Urban Legend. My God. Magnifique. Absolutely. We love it. Uh, Anyway, so people are clearing out of this fucking house because cop cars and ambulances are appearing now that Cece's body has been discovered. So everybody clears out of the house. And I do like this transition where Sydney goes back in to get the jacket and you realize for the first time she's alone. Did you guys catch that the, the Omega Beta Zeta house is right across the street from Delta Lambda Zeta, right? It's right across. It's literally right across the street, so they right? They could see the commotion of all the cop cars. Yeah. No, the, yeah. They're, they go out on the porch and it's it's right across the street. Uh, one thing I caught is that uh, Cece's character says the reason that she's not at the um, the mixer at Delta Lambda Zeta is she has to be the designated <laughs> driver. I'm like, bitch, it's right across the street. They can... Those girls are real drunk, Troy. She's literally dr- picking them they up. They need someone to drive them to Taco Bell yes. at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, it does give Sydney. Derek says he's going to take Sydney home. She has to go get her jacket. And, of course, the telephone starts ringing. Ominously. It's not even her phone, but she decides to answer it anyway. Yeah, that was very presumptuous of her to be like, I'm going to just answer this phone here in this person's house. Like, I, I would have just been like, uh, keep on ringing, especially with her history with phones to begin with. Don't even risk it. <laughs> her whole life's like, don't call me text. Don't call me email. <laughs> Only text. Yeah. Send me Braille. Like, I don't give a fuck, but no phone calls. But it's ghost-faced, and uh, she is immediately attacked she 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 actually eggs him on she's like well what are you waiting for come and get me and he's like right well she's like where are you at right here and he comes and attacks her but she gets attacked she runs she she actually is able to escape and Derek comes in and takes it from there he gets attacked conveniently sliced across the arm and which miss which misses his major arteries as we find out dewey shows up randomly and is there and Dewey is actually the one that finds Derek laying in the um, the hallway with his sliced arm. And Derek's like, he got away. He ran away. He got me. He got me. I like how right away Dewey starts like the accusations right off the fucking bat. Like this guy is like brutally cut, 
bleeding all over the place. And he's like, well, that looks rather convenient. Like, Dewey's such a little bitch. And when he comes running up those steps again with that arm, like, did nobody on set think to pull him aside and say, like, listen, my man, we all love you. But, like, I would tone the arm swinging down about 30%. Like, he literally swings in like Tarzan a few times here. And it is just very distracting. But I, I do appreciate that he's grabbing the bull by the horns. And he's trying to take charge, as Dewey does. And at the hospital, there is more uh, accusations between everybody. Because Mickey is sitting next to uh, Sydney, And he's like, isn't it convenient, you know, that, that Derek went back in there? knowing there was a killer in there. Don't you think that's kind of fishy? And then Dewey does the same with Dewey's in the room with Derek and Derek's getting um, his arm sewed up and Dewey's like, yeah, it's pretty convenient that that cut missed every major artery. And it's pretty convenient. You showed up right after the killer, you know, attacked Sydney and, and Derek's like, well, it's pretty convenient. You showed up right after the killer ran out of the room and attacked me. I mean, there's so, yeah, I mean, the film is really trying to, plant specific seeds in our minds about who the killer could be. They're really, they're stirring the cauldron with this one, like trying to plant in our minds, like it could be anybody, like every character. There's a moment where someone gives like a side glance or there's something like suggested that they could be involved. Like at one point, Hallie is suggested to maybe be the killer. Another point, Gail is suggested to be the killer. Like I, and you literally go through like a Sims like montage of, the killer's costume going from character to character. Like, does this fit? Like, does this make sense? They've been playing with that the whole series, especially in the first movie. Like, we get the glimpse that the killer wears black boots, and suddenly everyone in the movie is wearing black boots. Even later... The same exact pair. Yeah. exact same thing happens in the library with Cotton Weary walking down the steps. We get one quick shot of him taking a step down and he's wearing the same boots. So we, as the audience know, Oh, this is a potential clue. And it's, it's baiting us this whole time. Like, are you looking at those glances long enough? Is it, isn't it interesting to see which characters are accusing other ones? It is. It's a fun to rewatch this movie, knowing what's going to happen, trying to figure out how the clues are being played how the red herrings begin to fall. And how certain characters who are red herrings but end up having no actual involvement with the killer could be so suspicious yet not actually have any reason to be so. Like, that's another thing. Like, some of these more, like, suspicious moments with certain characters knowing that they're not the killer. It's like, hmm, like, that was very suspect that you acted that way. But okay. My favorite example of that in this series is in Scream 4 with, um, what's her name? The other lady cop. Judy. Oh my God. Her, that stairwell. The lemon squares. <laughs> Judy. Judy Hicks. And she's just hanging out in the shadows. Do you like remember a fucking me? creeper. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I know this I is wish. not going to happen. Give me that. Oh love. my God. Give me Judy Hicks as a fucking killer any day of the week. Judy Dix. <laughs> Judy Dix. Judy Hicks should have been Portia de Rossi yes. like, as a glow up. <sighs> Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity. Both of them, they're both cops. <laughs> they're both cops. <laughs> right? Because they were they were on the edge of danger for their oh whole college God. experience. And they realized and now they want to be Exactly. Oh they're gonna be have their own TNT series and it's all oh crimes every God. week. It's like Rizzoli and Isles. It's like <laughs> Thank you, oh thank God. you. Um there's this whole moment where you've got um like they're at like the, they're at the um with the sheriff and it's 
Dewey and the sheriff and Gail. And Gail, who's the real detective here, let's be clear. Uh, they all start to realize the the one major factor that ties the victims together as the fact that you have Casey C.C. Cooper. So her first name is Casey. You have Maureen Evans and you have Phil Stevens. The three names are all tied to the original murders. These are all victims who have passed in the same order as what we're seeing now. What's happening now, everyone who's dying their name is the same name as somebody else who has died before them. Um, it's kind of a stretch for me as a plot point. Like, okay, if you're going to give us this, that's fine. Like, if that's what we're going to go with, okay. It's definitely, like, not the most thought-out element of the Scream series. But, like, I'll take it. I'll take it for what it is. It never really comes back into play for the reason they wanted to recreate this, like, like death by death, character by character, name by name. It doesn't really play a major factor. They could have really just killed anybody, and I think it would have still had the same impact. But, um, okay. Like, I'll, I'll go with it, Scream 2. It is, yeah, it is one of the elements of the film that just doesn't get explored. It's brought up. And we never hear about it again. I mean, this entire scene could have been cut from the film and it would not have changed one single thing plot wise about this film. I, I agree. And I don't, I have to agree with you that this is like a filler scene and it doesn't really go anywhere, but it does solve that problem of why these three people, why did the, why did they get murdered? when we know that this is a Sidney Prescott-centered story. But also it doesn't make sense because why would the killers automatically think that people were going to make that connection? It's not even like... Sydney that makes the connection. It's it's Gail because of the names are of the names of the victims are written on the chalkboard and she kind of notices, oh, there's a Marine and there's a Stevens. But it's not like the killer was like sending Cindy or Sydney messages. Oh, do you notice the the names of the people that were killed? Like Sydney would have never figured this out on her own, regardless. And I think I don't think it needed to really be explained why these three were killed. We know that the killers are trying to again recreate what happened in Woodsboro the previous year. So I would have been fine with not even knowing this as an element and just keeping my mind, oh well, they're trying to get the the fear of the community back in and let Sydney know that, hey, there is a killer back in town. I don't I just think the name thing was just unnecessary. But that that does go to prove Mickey's motive then. He's like, I'm only doing this so that I can have this court case narrative of the movies made me a psycho. So I started killing people with the same character names as the movie that I'm trying to emulate. Like it's dumb, but it does make sense to his character arc. Because nobody even knew CeCe's real name was Casey either. So it's just weird. Anywho. Yeah. So there's that. And then the detectives are telling, um, Sydney that they're going to have, or the sheriff's or the captain is telling Sydney that that she's going to be followed. Now she's not going to go anywhere alone. So, um, when she's walking, we have these two detectives that pop up and just kind of their whole role in the film is to linger behind, uh, Sydney in ominous ways. They don't really have much dialogue. Um, it's insinuated that one of them is supposedly gay, but also <laughs> this is the moment where Sydney starts to kind of uh, be more guarded about herself and, and her safety because she tells Derek you know, you need to stay away from me. This is dangerous. You already got hurt. I don't want 
you to be involved with this. So I think it's best that you stay away. And Derek is very insistent. He's like, Sydney, no, I love you. I don't want you to get hurt either. I, I think we should stay together. I got to say, like, regarding the intro to the sequence, I have to point out her uh, holy fucking earth tones, Sydney. She looks like she just walked off a Greenpeace. Like, she looks... To me, if they were making a live-action version of Captain Planet and the Planet Tears, that is what the Planet Tears would be wearing in 2022. <laughs> like, it's very, like, it's all browns, moss greens, just very sad. No, nothing glamorous about it. Of Like a oversized leather jacket you mentioned before she's giving off like hardcore like dom lesbian energy absolutely the more this movie progresses the more i'm convinced that sydney is putting herself through college as as like a a, a dominatrix or something because that's really the aesthetic they're giving her dark lips a harsh harsh like bob and a lot of like baggy oversized earth toned fabrics and it's just a weird call for sydney uh not not the route i pictured her taking after the first film but here we are we we're here for it we're here for it did we get to the point where they watch more of stab in the uh, one of the my two favorite product placements of this whole movie is the baskin robbins ice cream shop where we get the rules of the sequel while also getting TV clips from Access Hollywood of Tori Spelling and Nancy O'Dell sharing our favorite um, high school bathroom dialogue between Sid and Billy. Yeah, where they pretty much know the dialogue that took place in real life verbatim. <laughs> but before that, we also get the singing scene in the cafeteria, which I am fine skipping because it we is. We don't need to talk about that. Yeah, it's at so all. cringy. <laughs> so cringy. Oh my God. Well, we've got some good character development. At least we have these moments. Right. He, he gives her uh, her letters with like Gail and. Yeah. Well, we have Gail and. and Dewey kind of like agree and they're going to do some legwork together and you can see the romance starting over again, which I'm fine with. Like if anything, let them have that joy. They have no other joy. He's paralyzed half of his body. She's a bitch, but you know what? She's got a heart somewhere deep under the thorns and he's the only one that can, can you know, bring the love out of her. I, I like their relationship quite a lot. I, I think the thing that is really exciting about their dynamic in these movies is that yeah, he's clearly, like, infatuated with her, but they both have this, like, energy to solve the crime, and they are bonded over being a part of that together to, like, put all the pieces together and figure out what the fuck is going on. And there's that moment where she kind of drops her pretenses about, you know, doing this for self-promotion, and she's like, I just want to fucking figure out what's going on. And then they start working together, and then they really start clicking again, and you're like, oh... I really like this. I'm like charmed by this. It makes sense that they fell in love for real while making these movies. It's very exciting to watch even now, 20 some years later. Well, and I think like in saying that he's infatuated with her, like, yes, absolutely. But he also is at least bold enough to stand up to her in, in ways that she won't let other people really talk to her. He is able to kind of call her on her shit, which I do appreciate because very few people get that. And he does get a few lines in where he's basically like, you're just a cold, hard fucking bitch. 
and uh, I'm over it, and I'm going to solve this crime. And she's like, God damn it, Dewey, I love you. And then they like, you know, and then they fall back in love. And that's how I prefer it, <laughs> is, a, is it's this tumultuous relationship that it's, they're star-crossed lovers in the long run, both in reality and on screen. It reminds me of Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams in Poltergeist 2, when the movie just kind of shifts into them uh, house hunting through the house, trying to figure out everything. And you're like, oh, they are so dynamic together. I love watching them. I forgot I was watching a haunted house movie. Just give me this. There is this scene where D- Gail does invite Dewey to help her, you know, um, and this is what you're talking about, Tyler, where, where he says, where she says, I just want to find this fucker. Do you see any cameras around? Uh, and Dewey storms off and then Gail storms off and is stopped by none other than Debbie Salt again. Oh, and I love this. This is like, you can tell a gay man wrote this because now Gail has this perfect uh, foil. Someone, a local woman doing her job better than she has. She has that little teasing moment after um, Sarah Michelle Geller is dead where she's like, oh, you're late. I got all the scoop. I have to go write this story up. So good luck getting all the information. Bye. And I'm like, ooh, this is how you really cut at the heart of Gail Weathers is letting this two-bit local woman out scooper. Listen, local woman. Well, and you can tell with Gail that like as shit's starting to hit the fan again and she's becoming more of a, a, a focus than she is the like in charge of things. Like she really wants to be running the story and she's becoming part of the story and she hates giving that up. There are so many moments where like she's trying to interview and people are also trying to like interview her. Like when she's like leading the press conference and all the reporters like are turning the microphone on her. Right. And you can tell she's so fucking frustrated. I love that she's kind of losing that control and that grasp over the situation. And she's so neurotic about those things. She needs to be in charge. So she's so frustrated with it, especially with fucking Debbie Salt. <laughs> who is omnipresent and always hovering. And Gail hates her. And I love that. I love that for Gail. I love how much Debbie Salt gets under her skin. It adds, uh, it adds a lot of um, spunk to their scenes together. Well, there is this moment also where like uh, Gail has all of these just negative things happen in a row to her. You know, she just got confronted by Debbie Salt. Dewey is not having any of her bullshit. And Joel confronts her and wants to quit because he just finished the the Woodsboro book and he's like, you didn't tell me your cameraman was gutted. And she's like, oh, he wasn't gutted. He had his throat slashed. And he's like, he's still f- dead. Um, so he wants to, she does talk him into staying. She's like, I need you. Please, please stay. He agrees up to a certain point. And it just seems like there's this, there's this like brief moment where everything around Gail Weathers is kind of collapsing. I Can I make a little side tangent right now? This character of Joel in this moment specifically um, how it relates to like the era we're in now with Jordan Peele and Nope of like, we've had the discussion in the beginning of Scream 2 with how horror movie treats its black characters and that they are self-aware too that to know when they're in situations like this, they get the fuck out of there. They say nope, they pack up their bags and they leave. And it's interesting that this happens for Joel. At the same time, this Nope movie is like, well, we're still going to make a horror movie about characters who have to deal with these situations when they would normally get the fuck out of there. And how do you, how, how do those two reactions to something, how can you still make that work? And unfortunately, in this movie, Joel says Nope, and he's gone. 
so he gets to survive the movie, but he also doesn't get the glory of like being there, fighting back and surviving. Earlier when I said that if you're going to bring a character back for the sixth movie, that would kind of get me intrigued. I mean it when I say Joel, because he is a character that managed to skirt by without, I mean, he witnessed the murder of Randy. So he's there, he was in it and he said, I'm getting the fuck out. Um, but for any diehard like uh, fan of the murders within that the, the universe in which the murders take place, I still think he was a name that would come up because he's there interviewing Sydney at the end of the movie. He takes charge of the camera. He's still present, you know. Um, and so I do think he's a character that like fans of the series who really know the series, uh, if he was played in the right way, would actually appreciate seeing him. You know, he's going to be the twins' father. Like that's such a. A layup. Oh if they don't do give it, they're me, crazy. Give me, give me that. Oh my god, those two, those two lovers. See, let me see that honeymoon. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, at this time in the movie, again, coming back to it, that goddamn fucking musical number is happening. I refuse to give it any more time than I have to. Sydney seems smitten with it. It's unacceptable. He is a horrible vocalist. There's nothing charming about it. I would be, I would be livid. I'd be like, get the fuck off of that fucking table it is charming right now it's so bad it's so bad and it's there's like nothing i know he's like trying to be charming but like i'm sorry maybe i just don't like attention who the fuck am i kidding i love attention <laughs> but if i'm getting attention give me quality attention like hire a band let me see a goddamn um uh what are those mobs called where like 40 people come out of nowhere doing arabesques uh, that's what i'm saying like if this movie came out 10 years later yes. it would have been a flash mob yes and i would be like i want to die why is why are we making a movie about this? <laughs> Give me people lowering from the ceiling doing the ribbons as they do, or on the hoops. Like, give me a full presentation. <laughs> but this nonsense, get the fuck out of town, Jerry O'Connell. Stick with your day job, which is apparently acting. <laughs> well, even well, I mean, almost as cringy, I think, as this scene is with with Derek on the cafeteria. We do get the scene with Sydney and her theater teacher, G- Gus. Rest in peace. But I just don't like this scene. Anything I don't like this whole conversation the two have. I don't like the whole her rehearsing the Cassandra thing and having the have her see the ghost face. Oh, I love that. I think I think it's so <laughs> fun. It's so fun. It's fun, but it's just like it's imp- again, it's implausible. <laughs> That no, that nobody else saw this like ghost face killer or this ghost face costume amongst the bright red, you know, costumes and stuff. I mean, it's it's fine, it's fine. It's just like when I get to this point in the film, I'm like, oh god, I gotta hear these two talk. <laughs> uh, I just, I think they could have just cut it out. I mean, the, the filming, the film is already two hours long. Like, give, come on, pull some stuff. Without this scene, the finale doesn't make sense. True, true. So you need to establish, you know, the the mechanics of the of the set stage design, which is such a fucking nerdy thing for me to say, but having seen it in this way and using this as a as a set piece, another scare of the ghost face stalking her really makes me appreciate what's happening at the end of the movie. Yeah, you're right. And it is a moment where Derek does show up again conveniently at, at the right moment. Oh, right. Right, because we need to see that like Greek fucking god pointing at her saying the f- fate's vengeful eyes fixed on me. Like this for the economy of storytelling and establishing this kind of Greek god on the pulley system. Oh my god. And then having Derek put in that position for later in the movie, I think works really well. 
And I would not sacrifice this scene because it sets up all these things that are paid off later in the movie. I feel like it feels overblown to me, but I also feel like like it serves its purpose for the finale. Like, I mean, do I really need to see Nev Campbell giving like a Shakespearean performance in the middle of screen two? Maybe if I knew that Sidney Prescott had a love of theater, then sure. But it just feels like out of fucking nowhere. I just wish it was more consistent with who she was as a person. Can I make an observation? Yes, please. That I don't think ever paid off. But I think the idea was to set her up as an actress here. And then in Scream 3, if it had been written by Kevin Williamson, would have found her acting in a horror movie like Stab. She would have been an actress in the movie. And that would have been the meta commentary that like now she's in the film series, which is based on her life. And that would have that's where it was leading to. And it didn't obviously go that way. But this this was setting it up. Speaking of actresses in horror movies, we did kind of gloss over it, but we do need to really emphasize because I think it is one of the best parts of this film is this this scene was precursored by the moment in which they do view some of the footage of Stab, including the report with one um, uh, uh, Tori Spelling, who I don't know how the fuck she got in this goddamn series, but she's here. And she has this whole scene where she does recreate that fucking hallway sequence with, um, uh, oh my God, who is it? With fucking Luke, Luke Wilson. Wilson, with those dr- distracting bangs. And it's like both awful, but really enjoyable at the same time as a, a fan of the film. Like if you've seen the original movie to see the influence it has in the sequence, it is such a smart commentary. It's hilarious. It's really well played. I enjoy any time we see any of the stab movies, but the first it, seeing it in this film specifically, their take on the original material, it's gold. And it, I wish there was more of it, to be honest. <laughs> right. It did. That's the kind of fan service I'm okay with because it's like, this is the joke that only the nerds will get because they know the dialogue for heart. But if you don't know, it doesn't sidetrack. Well, I'm that goddamn line about that they got David Schwimmer to play Dewey. Like, come on. I mean, <laughs> wink, wink, wink at the audience. It's all very well played. Nancy O'Dell, ageless, now that I have her name. <laughs> but yeah, so, and then... We do finally get to a point here again. I do like the camaraderie forming between the old characters. uh, And I do like the nods to the original movie of building off of the rules that were established. So we do get this moment here again where we start to learn the rules of sequels, that the the body count is always bigger, that the death scenes are always more elaborate. There's going to be more carnage. And uh, never become a a franchise, never, ever. But Randy's cut off before he really gets to finish the comment. Uh, which it's in itself is very self-aware. Yeah, and there, yeah, and this this leads into the whole scene with Gail, Randy, and Dewey sitting around talking about trying to figure out who could possibly be the next victim when Randy gets a call from Ghostface. Okay, before this, before we talk about this scene, do you all remember when you first saw this movie? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I was in the theater. Everyone lost their fucking shit. We were like gut gutted to see a beloved character bite the dust like this. Was that the same for you guys? I think the fact that they do what they ended up doing with the character of Randy made you feel a certain sense of no one is safe again. 
which up to this point, really throughout the course of the film, like it was, it's been a lot of fun and fancy free over the course of this movie. Lots of fun, but the characters that are getting killed off are for the most part pretty disposable. But now, all of a sudden, they kill off Randy, as we learn here in a second. Um, and all of a sudden, you're like, holy fuck, like Randy's one of the core characters. He's one of the survivors of the original film. He's dead. Who is safe? Like, is anyone actually safe? The fact that they're able to swoop in and, and recapture that feeling of no one is safe, I think is very impressive considering the trajectory they were on up to this point. I mean, yeah, you're right. The, when I saw this in the theater, I do remember people like just erupting when they actually go through with killing Randy. But I also think it was a smart decision. You really have to, you know, uh, pull out all the stops if you're if you're going to keep your audience on their toes. And that's the one thing that I've always said about like the three, you know, the, the three remaining characters, Dewey, Sydney, and Gail. It just becomes a little too... Uh, ridiculous that these three keep surviving everything over and over and over again. So I thought it was smart to kill Randy. I preferred, I would have preferred them kill Dewey here in Scream 2 and let Randy have a couple more films just because I'm much more fond of the Randy character than I am the Dewey character. And it probably would have the same impact because, you know, Randy and Dewey both have their fan base I'm not as fond of the Dewey character as I am Randy, but I'm glad. I mean, I have to give the filmmakers uh, some credit for having the balls to do what they did with Randy in this. I think it's the right decision. I know that it hurt while watching it, but as I get older, I'm like, absolutely, this character needs to go. Uh, My biggest problem is the same problem that I had when Sarah Michelle Gellar died, where the tension is undercut by the use of pop music. And in this moment, Randy's been pulled into the van, he's getting stabbed, and these three B-boys walk by with a giant boombox dancing, and it undercuts the terror of the moment. Suddenly it's like, I understand why they did it. You need to establish why this rocking van is not going noticed by all the people around them, and it's because it's been drowned out by this booming bass. However, it steals this moment where I want to mourn for this character because it makes it a little jokey. And that's not my favorite. I want I want these uh, kills to hurt and sing a little bit, and but the use of pop music really undercuts that. Yeah, you know, one thing I think I would have appreciated here is with his character being such a, like, knowledgeable source of all things horror, like, give him a death sequence that is truly horror you know and instead he does like i mean it's shocking i still appreciate the lead up to it i love the fuck you you know like like, (laughs) it really plays off his humor but you forget that like randy's character is there is the source of of knowledge and i really think there was a missed opportunity it feels like there's a missed opportunity to have shown something more violent this shtick would have played off really well for if they would have killed if they would have killed off those two fucking sorority girls or something like you know something like disposable (laughs) like that but this moment does i get what you're saying the build-up is so great like give me courtney cox stealing phones from people uh, introducing herself as as gail (laughs) weathers the writer of the woodsboro murders any day of the week i'll take it but i do feel like randy it, it does feel somewhat of a like a lackluster ending for a really great character 
Yeah, they, they they really did shortchange like the potential impact of the the death with the quick cut and the, the music and everything like that. But it is still a, I mean, yeah, I mean, people to this day are still pissed that they killed Randy off. And it's, you know, there's been four films after this and you still hear people, oh, they should have never killed Randy. So obviously they, they, they it had a an impact on the <laughs> fan base. I do like the whole Gail and Gail discovering that Randy is not around anymore and running up to the van and seeing the blood leak out of the van and opening opening the van door and just having that you know terrifying guttural scream that she gives uh and we see that zoom in on her face yeah yeah we do see randy's bloodied body and this is when uh uh faints and he is done we find out with this whole you mean Joel. Joel, sorry, Dwayne. I don't know where I said Dwayne. I think the actor's <laughs> name is Dwayne. I got it confused. Right. Joel. Or went out for Randy. Yeah. Um, now, Sydney's in the uh, library, and she gets a on the computer that she's working at, and it says that she's going to die tonight. <laughs> Kids don't know. Kids don't know that this was the first evolution of text messaging. and Yeah. <laughs> Remember that AOL Messenger and right? It was a giant block of text that just covered your entire screen, and everyone could read it. How like the font still looks really intimidating. It's like you're going to die tonight, like big red font, but it's like all granulated. <laughs> well, you can you can choose yes, your red. You it's very effective font. Whoever thought to do it, um, but so obviously she obviously like goes to like like rush from the room as everybody's like kind of thrown off by her when she topples her chair over in dramatic fashion. And as she goes to leave, the master of timing, Cotton, appears and like aggressively confronts her about goddamn going on Diane Sawyer. And like this man cannot read the room at all. Like he is not picking up on the fact that this girl is obviously having like a, a reaction to something terrifying, but also like there seems to be some commotion going on in the next room. There's two cops that are following her around everywhere. They seem to be distracted by what's happening. I'm just shocked that Cotton lets himself get so sloppy here. You know, did y'all catch in his dialogue where he's talking about all the money he makes on his one nine hundred number? What is, what is that about? Yeah. I was wondering that is he like a does he do like sex work on a nine hundred number or what what's right? this di- or like does he read people's tarot cards what's going on what is this nine hundred number I, that's something I needed to know like what is Cotton Weary doing on a nine hundred number I will give you two ninety nine a minute to find out I would pay that for that <laughs> fucking jawbone structure oh man yeah but he is he is definitely suspiciously aggressive towards sydney i mean to the point where he's like grabbing her blocking her from walking away i mean this is like you could not have made this like a more red herring moment if you tried i mean you'd have to have like arrows on the screen pointing red herring red hair because it is like over the top aggressive Um, but i do love the fact that leaf shriver was given more to do in this film because he's actually quite good in this role oh he's great i mean it does make me in this particular film scream three well i mean who in scream three is really like oh like nobody no one's performances is getting really any accolades certainly certainly not jenny mccarthy's in scream three (laughs) uh but um Less said yes, about that, the right. better. But I think that he, no, he does a great job with the material he's given. It makes me wish he had a little bit more of a presence in the first movie. So that emotional, like, follow through, like, I, that I felt more about that connection. 
but I still appreciate like that is him in that one. There's like one photo or video clip in the original film of him, and is that actually Lee Shriver? It is him. Yeah, Good. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I just wish yeah. we got even more from the original film, to be honest, because his presence is great. I would love to know more about the impact he had on the original story. You know. Because of this whole this whole uh, this whole shenanigans that he pulled with with Sydney, he is taken to the uh, police department and questioned. While Sydney is obviously devastated that Randy is dead, she even makes the comment that it should not have been Randy; it should have been her. Sheriff is like very blatantly accusing Cotton of of being involved in the murders, and Cotton's like, "Well, if you can prove it, book me." And they realize they have to let him go because they really don't have any evidence. As, as, as he's leaving, he runs into Gail. And Gail's like, come on, come. Don't do anything stupid. And he says to her, hey, you were so instrumental in my freedom. You're not having character doubts now, are you? And he walks away. And she's just like left there. And you, you, you know that she is having character doubts. You can see it in her face. She's like, oh, fuck. What did I do here? Sydney does have one little line in the midst of all this that I really love. I hit to the line where she's like, stop treating me like glass dewy. I'm not going to break, <laughs> you know, cause no one can deliver an emotional line quite like a, um, like a Nev Campbell. And she really is consistently phenomenal in this film, just like she was the last. Um, and she is given some, some great kind of tender emotional parts here, especially with the loss of Randy, you can tell she really cared about him, that they shared a really close bond together. Um, and, and I really love when we do get to see Nev Campbell actually really act. I mean, she's phenomenal no matter what she does, but the girl can give drama along with the best of them. Like, I'm waiting for the day that she gets nominated for a major award because she's the camera loves her. I'm pretty sure Roger Ebert actually said regarding the original Scream, which I don't believe he was a huge fan of, he said that the camera is in love with Nev Campbell every frame that she's on. And it's so true. I mean, she is so captivating. Her emotion is so real and human. Um, and and I really cherish the scenes that we have with her as this character because it does make her all, feel all the all the stronger, all the more uh, realistic and believable and relatable. Well, we also find out that she's going to be taken. That Sydney is going to be taken away someplace uh, safe. She's being taken off campus uh, and is going to be kind of isolated from everyone so that she is not a target of this mysterious killer. Outside, this is when Debbie Salt, outside the, the police station, this is when Debbie Salt confronts Gail for the final time. And uh, Gail is not having it. This is when she's like, listen, local woman, I know you think you're flattering me, but just knock it off. That's hilarious. And then Joel quits. And then he gives her a, a whole bag of the tapes of the recordings that he's done so far with, with their work together. And do she goes to do and she's like, do I really just want to find this fucker? Um, and do like, what's in the bag? And she said, it's the tapes of the footage that uh, Joel recorded. And they both have this like moment where they think, well, if the killer is doing this and, and wants the attention and is like relishing in the chaos that they're causing, chances are they're probably in this footage. So they decide to take the bag of, of videos and they go into the uh, one of the school buildings to put the tapes in and start watching them. Oh my God. When they went into the school of film, down to the classroom, and that fucking media cart with the VCR and the giant TV, I got nostalgia. I was like, oh, why am I feeling such a way about this stupid media cart? 
This is also kind of a shifting point for her character because she does say, she says, I feel bad, Dewey. I feel real bad. I never say that because I never feel bad about anything, but I feel bad now. And like, you can finally start to see the cracks forming with Gail. Like, she's only, she's such an anti-hero, but she's only shitty to a certain degree before her humanity does come out. And I'm so happy that at this point, she has her shift. It only took, you know, Randy dying, but she's there. Yeah, she's there. And she's she's there for the rest of the movie. Well, yeah, and they're watching this footage and they're half-ass paying attention to it. There is like the moment that, that Joel caught with Dewey telling her that um, she's a mediocre writer, blah, blah, blah. But then they, they proceed to just basically start making out. Like to the point where she's climbing on top of him. Um, and suddenly the TV behind them turns on and we are getting footage of all of various victims in the moments before they got killed. Like we see footage of Maureen and Phil in line at the Rialto theater. We see footage of Cece outside her house. The, the, the killer is obviously recording and they look up and they see Ghostface up in the, um, the, the film projection room. So what does Dewey do with his gimp leg as he runs up the steps? <laughs> what a wild limp this is in this specific shot. I mean, he's moving fast, but it is, very dramatic. It's a very dramatic limb. Right, but he's he's a cowboy. He's there to save the day and rescue his beloved. So he's got this very noble rush into danger because it might save somebody. Very noble. <laughs> very noble, and it doesn't really pay off because he gets up there and ghost face somehow without either of them seeing now is all the way down where Gail is behind the desk. How did he get down there without them seeing him? Or was that the other ghost face waiting strategically planted the entire time? I, I will say that this is the part of the movie where I am like at my peak. This, like, this is the start of the next few sequences where I'm like absolutely riveted. I am tense. I'm terrified. Even watching it again this morning before this podcast, I was like this. Yes sequence of events is very well put together still works 25 years later i am as scared now watching it as i was the first time masterful masterful and one one thing i cherish about this film specifically is like the first film like you had a few moments with gail where she like you had the moment of her trying to escape in the van uh, a few good scream moments but overall like she still felt very sidelined in the sense of like the horror and her involvement with it. She was either MIA or she was knocked out here. Gail is treated to one of the best chase sequences in the entire film, if not the best. Um, and she's fucking great. Like give me Courtney Cox running around in that fucking white, like that, that skin tight white t-shirt, like looking tiny as a fucking thimble running all around hiding Behind tinted glass. The sound flats as well. Oh my god. I love that like little the suspense maze. of it all. So good. Oh, so <laughs> fucking good. So good. She's great. And like I love that she got to have such a massive chase sequence in this film. Right. Because the last film, that's one thing that she really didn't get to have. Yeah. I mean what what ha- what happens here from this point to the end of the film, I think, is is where the film kicks into high gear. Really what makes it for me become uh, better than the original film 
not much, but I, I just feel like this the last, you know, say the last act of this film is just nonstop suspense. And this film to me has two of the most suspenseful sequels of the entire franchise. And that's this one with Courtney Cox running through the this the studio and hiding behind the white sound things and uh, as Ghostface is kind of pursuing her. And then one of the scenes coming up here. But yeah, she she's gives it her all. She's hiding in rooms, shutting door slamming doors. Uh I- the terror I felt with her when she gets into that se- second room and realizes there's no lock on the door, she just screams out "fuck" so loud that it like potentially exposes her to where she is in relationship to the killer. But also, we're getting little glimpses of the room that she's surrounded by to pay off later, and at this time, as she wakes her way into the sound booth. She's behind this uh, pane of glass that is soundproof. And we can tell that because Dewey's on the other side trying to get her attention by banging on the glass and she doesn't react. And we see Ghostface sneak up behind Dewey. And she's oblivious to it until Ghostface stabs Dewey in the back and he is flailing and he hits hits the speaker or the microphone. So the sound in the room is amplified and she hears him screaming. So she turns around and we see she basically witnesses Dewey being stabbed to death. Like the killer very purposely shoves Dewey's face into the glass so that she can see the blood pouring out of his mouth and stuff. And we think as she does, because she has a huge breakdown moment that that's the end of Dewey. And it should have fucking been. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I, I love this sequence for all the reasons we're talking about it. Rewatching it today, I noticed a very glaring film flub that I hate to tell you about, but I'm going to do it anyways. When Gail turns and sees Ghostface and she screams, you can see the reflection of Ghostface staring back at her. But you hear stab sounds of Dewey getting stabbed. But we do not see Ghostface stabbing Dewey. We see Ghostface staring directly at Courtney Cox in this moment. And it kind of just kind of broke my heart a little bit because I was like, no, I remember this being so good. This is very obvious a mistake or something they tried to fix with sound effects. To the most part, it works. But now that I know, you have to know. And... I still choose to love this movie regardless. Tyler, thanks for stripping me of my fucking joy. I have nothing I have nothing <laughs> you left. You shall to never to. be happy again. <laughs> I've done my job. And I bid you all good night. <laughs> I didn't notice um, that. I'm gonna have to go back and check it out. I, I honestly did not notice that. Right. Only because the, the, the mask itself catches any light that's on it. So you can very clearly see that it's staring directly at her, not moving, yet we're hearing the sound effects of stabbing and and terror happening that we can't see. And I'm like, oh, you, you you didn't sell this moment, but everything else about it is really working. Well, and then she realizes Ghostface is going to come and get into the door, and she does a very smart thing by knocking that, yes! that bookcase yes. over to block it. When I see characters do that, I get so much joy. Like, yes, okay, you're smart. I'm in hands of people who know what they're doing. She's going to survive, and I'm rooting for her. I do like, I will say I like Ghostface here because this is probably perhaps some of the more, uh, one of the more like 
frantic, angry ghost faces we've seen. I mean, this ghost face is literally pissed that he can't get into this room. I mean, he's just agitated, throwing anything he can at the glass, and the glass won't break, obviously, because it's shatterproof shatterproof glass but this ghost face is pissed and i love seeing this i just love this ghost face trying to get his hardest to get into this room and just getting even more and more enraged that he can't get in and there's something to be said about her reaction in this moment that is honestly rather uh rather terrifying in of itself and the, the fact that she you know she blocks the door she barricades the door but then she's like holy fuck like i think there's a moment you think he's gonna get in and she's just cowering in a corner like there's nothing else she can really do she's trapped in this room uh and she just kind of shrivels up into this corner and i th- i thought like it uh, uh, there's one angle where you look like you're you can look at it and be like oh god get up and fight and there's the other angle of being like holy fuck what does she have left to give in this moment you know it's actually quite um quite terrifying i think in a really like uh sign of the intimidation factor that that, that Ghostface has when in costume over these people. But he just disappears. She looks up one, one, one second and he's gone. And then we see Sid getting in the cop car. Hallie is going to come with her and she's saying goodbye to Derek, you know, and Derek's like, I'll be here when you get back. Don't worry about it. And the car pulls away. And immediately after the cop car pulls away, Derek is attacked by a bunch of cloaked figures who we realize are just his frat brothers telling him he has to pay for giving away his letters. Right. But then the, the, the twins show up and starts give my favorite line reading. So romantic. So Greek. Uh, yeah. I forgot they showed up in this scene. I think I said earlier that that at the, that mixer was the last time we saw them, but they are here. Yes, they are because they are gleefully pouring beer and shit all over a shirtless boxered Jerry O'Connell who is tied to that wooden beam inside of the, the theater that comes into play here. And they are just loving it. It's very homoerotic because all of his frat brothers are like spraying him with liquid and pouring beer in his mouth. <laughs> and he's in there in his little boxers and nothing else. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, no notes. No notes. It's hot. I'm going to be honest. Hot. I mean, like, his character I could give two shits about overall, but God, he looks fucking good tied to that fucking cross getting beer spewed all over him. Jesus, <laughs> those lips. Let's talk a little bit more about them lips. They're the best lips in the whole fucking movie. Oh, my God. He's so pretty, a young uh, Jerry O'Connell. Um, but, yeah, and so everything that happens with this whole thing with, like, the brothers, it feels very um, – it feels a bit forced to me just because like after a series of murders happening on campus revolving around his girlfriend, do they really think now is the best time to like, you know, put their Greek policies to play? That does go back to Scream 1 with them around the fountain is like these characters, these kids don't give a fuck about what's happening in the world around them until the terror is too close to home that they can't escape it. Like, that feels very real. Like, yeah, terrible things are happening all around this town, but we're so self-involved that nothing is going to get in the way of us and our partying. Yeah, and for that, they should die. They should all die. Uh, so Yeah, well, you think, you, think the, you think the college campus would have a little bit more security also after all of these strings of murders that have happened, and apparently not because... He is literally kidnapped and <laughs> right, right from the campus and dragged into the. That's a, 
a really fun misdirection. Plus, it's the same robes that we got. Isn't it the same robes from the theater? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is they're so they're repurposing this. They are giving us a fake out uh, stalking moment. All of this is great misdirection because we're like, where, where is where are we going? Where is the actual yeah. threat? What is a non-threat? And I I love that of this. It might seem it all seems very intentional, but uh, it's it's good for the mystery as it's unfolding. Yeah, I agree with that. Like they wisely incorporate all of these elements that they have introduced earlier. Everything to do with the theater, the fact they're putting on a Greek like a. Um, like um, a Shakespearean drama with like a Greek chorus playing into the Greek frat brothers. Like, you know, that it, it all feels very intentional, very coherent. So I will give it that. I appreciate how everything kind of builds and climaxes around this one environment, everything it has to offer. Well, this leads into what I believe is the most suspenseful scene of the entire screen. I get franchise. chills thinking about it. I have to agree. Yeah, so the cop car, Hallie and Sydney are in the cop car. They stop at a stoplight, uh, and while they're waiting, and this is the longest stoplight in the world, and Sydney is like, or Hallie says, where are you taking us? And the one cop turns around and says, well, if we told you, we'd have to kill you. And I was thinking, come on, are you really <laughs> going to say that to these two women who are fleeing a murderer? How unprofessional. And then the other one who is, I'm supposed to, I'm assuming is supposed to be the gay one, <laughs> he, he says... Don't ask, don't tell. I lost it laughing today, hearing that line. I didn't catch it or the implications of it the first time. But this time I'm like, oh, absolutely. And I'll, and then, oh. then the killer busts through the freaking driver's side window and slashes the one cop's throat. Um, and the other cop gets out and is like, I mean, this is a this is a pretty elaborate scene. He gets on the hood of the car. Ghostface gets in the cop car and is like driving high speed with this flailing elderly cop trying to hang onto the hood until he smashes and crashes into a, a construction site and all of these poles and shit come flying off of the the rack and um, impale the one poor cop through the face through it comes out of his eyeball. And you get this scene where, you know, uh, Sydney and, and, and Hallie are banged up, but they're, they're conscious. Ghostface is not. Ghostface is completely unconscious. They realize, because they're in the back of a cop car, that the doors will not open and they cannot get out. I love this little car crash moment. It also brought up movies that came after, like Final Destination 2 and, oh yes. God, why am I forgetting it? The Descent with the metal pipes coming through the yes, windshield. Yes, the opening car accident. Uh, this yeah. is so thrilling to me to as a fan of Sydney Prescott trying to figure out her way out of this impossible situation. And you everyone knows like that killer is not dead. That killer is faking it. He's going to come alive at any moment. Yet they have to do what they have to do to get out of the situation and it is still some of the most uh, white knuckle tense moments of this movie. I remember seeing this in the theater and just being like, I was on the edge of my seat, like literally clinching the the, the seat handles during the scene. I'm just like, Oh, because you do expect that he is going to wake up, especially when he, when Hallie is trying to get past him, Sydney, you probably, okay. He's probably not, but when Hallie is there, I thought, Oh, for sure. He's going to wake up and, and you know, 
Right. And the movie is smart enough to let us think that and expect it and then withhold it till the very last moment. And I'm so thankful. Well, I think one of the things that makes this scene have so much of, an, of a half or an oomph for me is it opens, like, well, I don't want to say opens, but you're launched in this predicament with this car accident sequence that if you watch the death of the, uh, the officer on the top of the car, it, I dare say it's the most violent kill in the Scream series to date. You see the body get pinned down and the metal bars go through the rear of the skull. Like, you see a very violent kill. More violent than I would anticipate normally for the franchise. Like, we see a lot of stabbings. But for the most part, like, you kind of know what to expect from a Scream movie. This seemed very um, extreme, even for the context of the film we're talking. So you're launching into this, this situation where it's like, oh, fuck, these people can get really fucked up. Like, they, this is brutal. This is very vicious. And then they draw it out for so long. Like, they... They don't rush the sequence. They let it really take its time. And then when Sydney gets out of the car and realizes that Hallie's door is jammed, like she's like, are you fucking kidding me? You got to do it all over again. It right, really is right. pure suspense. It's so well-crafted. And the why this works so well is because it breaks the formula that we've seen countless times in these movies so far. We're not using a knife to kill someone. Now we're using a car. This is... You know, this is the Tatum death in the doggy door of the first movie. It's an untraditional weapon and an untraditional kill. and But it's also then trapped our main star in an impossible predicament. And it's working on so many levels. I can't speak highly of it enough. Oh, it's... It's an amazing scene. It really, this, again, this is another scene that I think which should be studied, uh, you know, in terms of how to really create suspense. There's that moment where, you know, when Sydney's is crawling over him and she getting, she's getting ready to pull the mask off that she actually accidentally hits the horn and you think, oh shit, he's going to wake up. And he doesn't. And then there's the moment Hallie comes through the front and she's trying to get out the passenger door. You can't because it's blocked up against the, the, the wall outside. So she has to crawl over him. And again, I was fully expecting Hallie to be killed at this moment. Like there's that moment where she's climbing out the passenger or the window and Sydney's trying to grab her and help her. And I thought for sure the killer then was just going to stab the shit out of her right there. And Sydney was going to pull her out and she was going to be stabbed to death. That doesn't happen. So it really, you know, diverts expectations. And I think that's another thing that makes this film so, or this particular scene so effective because any other slasher film that we've seen, something like this happen where a character or characters have to get past a killer, the killer always, always, wakes up or comes becomes you know conscious and grabs grabs and tries to kill or do whatever this does not do that however i will say this also leads to the the one part of this film that makes me angry <laughs> but before before we get there staying in the cop car moment of terror i have to give a shout out to our other favorite woman stuck in a cop car about to go on the chase of her life miss helen shivers the fact that we got two cop kill or cop car uh, set pieces in such a short amount of time, beautiful gifts, praise, really the praise, gift to us. praise. I like to think that that chasing was going on right down the street, like as this was unfolding. <laughs> meanwhile, Helen Shivers, in midst of sprint, full silhouette against a brick wall, 
runs past their car. (laughs) Like, and they just didn't notice it in the midst of the chaos. Oh my God. If only we could bring those worlds together and have a real versus movie. Ooh, I'll watch that. Anyways, they get out of the car. They're about to escape. No, Sydney Prescott just got to know. She just got to know. Damn, Sydney. If Sydney just would have listened to Hallie, I blame, and I'm sorry, Sydney got Hallie killed. And it really is a disservice to that particular, to the character of Hallie that she was disposed of so quickly and just like an afterthought. But again, as you've mentioned, uh, Tyler, it seems to be a trend with this particular film that I really. I guess started to notice really heavily upon viewing it for this particular episode is how, yeah, these characters, when they are killed, they are, it's just very like dismissively. There's no like emotional punch to it. You know, the fact that Sydney was so hell bent on, on going back to find out who Ghostface was because she said, Oh, then it would be over. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know if I buy that, that, that would, that Sydney would actually do that. But then there's the whole problem of how did Ghostface get out of that car without them seeing him do it. Right. He's already gone before she runs back. You can see when she runs back to the car that there's no shape in the front window anymore. Because the yeah, the only doors he could have got out were the on the driver's side. And they and Hallie was facing Sydney, who was facing her, but Hallie had a perf- a full view of the car behind them. She would have saw ghost face she, yeah. there was like a little construction wall of materials that she was hiding behind she was so. she was like by it but like i don't i, I couldn't tell that it was like this uh, obstructing her view of the cop car regardless sydney prescott got hallie killed and i'm pissed <laughs> about it right and she'll have to live with that for the rest of her fucking i mean life. added to the list of people who died because of sydney prescott i don't think she's too worried about it <laughs> in the meantime the theater is going in full swing whoever's in there they, they, there's some person turning on the music and, and lighting up the theater to the point where it, sydney hears it and she runs to the theater thinking that it could be her theater teacher gus this is this is the part of the movie where i'm like what like fuck this this is doesn't make sense that she would be led to this moment Logically, she should have ran to the police, back to the police station. But she decides the theater is the safest place. She goes inside. It's it's completely empty. Um, she goes up on stage. She's, she's calling for Gus. And all of a sudden, the set pieces start to come, kind of fall from the ceiling uh, towards her. And she's getting the impression that someone in there is up to no good. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Derek drops down from the ceiling still tied up and she is trying to untie him. She makes the comment about, you know, he's asking her what's going on. What's going on? She's like, Oh, the killer, the killer's here. And he's like, he's like, where is, where is he? And then all of a sudden right behind her, you hear right here. I do feel this all builds up to like a reveal that seems very like, I don't say rushed, but it's like, and it's happening. Right. Right. It doesn't, it's not, um, plotted. Well, no. And this is, Troy, where I'll say that if I'm going to prioritize my love for Scream, the first film over the second, is while this, this while the sequel is definitely thrilling um, and has significantly more, I'd say, scenes of um, just like, you know, high, high stakes excitement, uh, the first film is a far more um, consistent and flawless story from beginning to end. I mean, not saying it's absolutely perfect, but 
Uh, I feel that there are more moments that feel kind of clunky as the story goes on through Scream 2 that I kind of look at and I'm like, that was a weird choice. Uh, I never feel that with Scream. I always feel like, wow, this story is fucking great from start to finish. Every reveal, every secret, every character. This film, there are characters I feel get underutilized. There are plot choices that I feel at times feel a, uh, a bit off. Um, there are timing issues. This does feel like a rather ra a rushed revelation, whereas in the first film, the revelation of the two killers just so naturally uh, developed and unfolded before our eyes. This does feel kind of out of the nowhere. Boom. Mickey's there and he's a killer. <laughs> like we're already at two hours. We got to get through this shit. Um, Much like this, this podcast. Is... <laughs> exactly. What time did we start? Oh, God. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> I will say my least favorite part of any Scream movie is when the guns come out. I do not care. I am so uninterested in a horror movie that kills people with guns. I'm like, you're preaching to Troy. You lost me. I don't care. Yeah, I feel this. I hate, I hate, I absolutely loathe a, a gun as a weapon in a horror movie. Right. I want the untraditional weapon. I want the car chase through the construction site. I want something to keep me interested. Yeah. It's such like a, to me, it's like a, it's, a, it's like a cop out. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a very revered indie slasher film. We covered it on our Patreon, but uh, one of the things I absolutely, can you whisper it for me? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a killer clown and he dispatches what we think is going to be the final girl and she puts up a hell of a fight and he dispatches her with a gun and i was oh, no. so Fuck fucking that. pissed wait was that what was terrifier oh, i didn't see it yeah art the clown um but i mean it's just it, it to me it's just so anticlimactic and it just seems like a cheat right it's just like it's a it's a story killer it literally all the momentum that you have building like goes out the window because there's no personal connection to it. How don't you have an edge over a gun? You can hurt a person with a gun from a great distance away without really doing anything. Like it automatically gives the killer an edge. And uh, I agree, especially, and like there are some scenes that I like it, like in the original Scream again, like I feel like when those boys are at that point, they're at a desperation point. The reveal is very much like this is part of the plan. Here, it feels like it's just kind of going through the motions. And because there was a gun in the first film, he's got to have a gun in this one. And he's got to use it more. Well, there's well, there's guns in every Scream film. Every Scream film ends with a gun, the killer having a gun. Think about it. Scream 3, Scream 4, I Scream I hate three. it. Especially this last one with the welcome to Act 3, bitch. I was like, this is so dumb. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? It's a scream thing. It's a way, I guess, it's for them to feel like, yeah, they are be they're going to be able to corral these characters. But yeah, it's just like an unfair advantage, and that's you know that's one thing I would just say I brought it up terrified. That's one thing that just really rubbed me the wrong way with that film because, God, you have a slasher film, and up to that point, you had amazing uh, practical effects, and then you you take out the main character with a fucking gun. I'm like, no, I don't think the. I don't feel like this climax was rushed. I feel like they were trying to like really pop it in as a surprise. Like, does it work? Eh. You know, I would have liked a little bit more build up uh, to Mickey's reveal. Right. It, it doesn't seem natural because at this point we're not being 
chased by him. He just kind of shows up and be like, hey, guys, you ready for a dramatic monologue? Yeah, he's like, I'm right here. And he pulls off the mask and it is Mickey. Mickey is one of our first killers. Um, I will say the one thing I do like about the Mickey reveal is that he immediately tells Sydney or looks at Derek and says, Derek, okay, so that's where you've been. He's like, I've been having to do this by myself the entire night, immediately throwing suspicion at Derek. And even Sydney is like, now she is like, oh shit, is this, is Derek really one of the partners? And, and uh, Mickey uses it to his advantage. He's like, are you really going to untie him? You're going to believe me or are you going to believe you? You know, you don't ha- you don't have a very good track record track record track record with boyfriends. <laughs> Looks like you fingered the wrong guy again. I think one of the things about Derek's I think one of the things with Derek that is also such a bummer is like and I kind of implied this earlier, but this like second half of the movie, he becomes such an afterthought. And now here, this final moment that he has with Sydney, and he has absolutely no means of defending himself or anything. He's bound to this cross. And that's how it finishes. Like he's tied up, can't fucking do anything. Mickey pulls the gun out, ends up shooting him in the chest and killing him. And that's it. And you realize that this whole time, Derek was not a bad guy. He was literally just there to be a red herring. But his death is so like unceremonious. Like it is so tossed. It's a toss aside. Here's the same shit to do that Steven did in the opening of Scream 1. Whatever, whatever the boyfriend's name was. He's like, oh, he's just there to be uh, mincemeat for the sharks. Um, but the tender moment that does happen after he is shot is when she tries to cover up the wound with her hand. I think it's a very romantic gesture or something. It, it, it shows to me that she suddenly did not believe that he was the killer. She was like, I've been played and I feel bad now. Well, and he even says to her as he's dying, he says, I would never hurt you. And it is very sad. You 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 want more for his character and you want more for Sydney. Like, can't this woman ever have fucking love in her life? Like, come on. Either the guy's trying to kill her or he's being killed. She can have no peace. Well, we find out that after Mickey shoots Derek, we find out Derek's motive And it is that he wants to be caught because he is going to plead insanity and blame the movies. And it's going to become the trial of the century. And he's going to have all of these people that are going to be defending him. Bob Dole and the best lawyer. Right. Yes. The Christian coalition will pay all my legal fees. That was like, oh, we're in that moment right now. Like, do you not feel the like Kyle Rittenhouse comparison to this story you're like oh this is fucking bleak and evergreen unfortunately yeah absolutely it feels extremely relevant um his dialogue delivery is actually rather great um it's unfortunate that mickey does end up becoming i would say severely outshadowed um just because the other reveal is so great because uh, he's actually very good here with this moment. He delivers his dialogue well. It's just, it's a quick kind of fleeting moment before the other reveal takes place. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, they do get their little uh, kind of battle scene. It's 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 quite brief before she finally gets, you know, she she whaps him with the, uh, the necklace that Derek gave her and then is able to fight him and, and tell uh, the 
more set pieces start dropping from the ceiling and he's like, Oh, who could that be? And we get our reveal of our second killer. I do like this, that they try to misdirect you just slightly because the first person that walks out of the, uh, from backstage is Gail. And you're like, Oh shit. Gail Weathers was one of the killers, but no, right behind her in her sensible suit, white suit, pantsuit is Debbie Salt. Unexpected. For someone who has not seen this movie before, I'm sure it is not what you would anticipate. But oh, how does it pay off? Rule number one of filmmaking. If you dress a character in all white, they will be covered in blood by the end of the night. And that's exactly what happens to Miss Debbie Salt. I mean, talk about taking a fucking scene and and running with it. This sequence oh i was i was watching it extra closely this time she i think she only blinks once that stare she is wide-eyed terrified and you can see the row of lights on the stage floor reflected in her eyes so it just looks like fucking daggers are shooting out of them it is beautiful i mean i love this performance it just harkens back to like i said mrs Voorhees. From the original Friday the 13th, the wild, crazy eyes, uh, the same motive. We find out that Debbie Salt is really Mrs. Loomis. It's Billy Loomis's mother. And she is, her motive is just good old fashioned revenge. Sydney killed her son and now she's going to kill Sydney. Um, she does shoot and kill Mickey um, while she shoots him. She's like, you know, that Mickey was a good kid, but that motive, good Lord. <laughs> so 90s and all this while I gotta give Sydney a little bit of cred- credit here Sydney has been a bad bitch through this whole sequence when she's fighting Mickey she's really kicking some fucking ass she's not being a fragile young woman she's busting out some fucking great one liners lines along the uh, along the lines of things such as uh, one thing about Billy Loomis you forgot I fucking killed him. Like things like that. She's like, come and get me motherfucker. And I appreciate that Sidney Prescott, even in the face of danger and wide eyed insanity does not back down. You do not intimidate Sidney Prescott. She'll fucking kick your ass. But she also like, will read a bitch being like, when they reveal that it's Mrs. Loomis, she's like, I, oh, she lost 60 pounds and had a lot of work done. And then without a beat, it's like, it's called a makeover. You would do well to get one yourself. I mean, it's it's a wild scene. So I was completely floored when this killer reveal happened. And I still think it's probably one of the best of the series, finding out that Debbie Salt is really the killer. There are, yeah, it's just, it's just a, it's just a rapid fire of back and forth between Sydney and Debbie to the point where like Sydney makes the comment, you're just as crazy as your son. She's like, what was that? Did you just make a disparaging mark about my Billy? And and Sydney is pretty smart because she has that moment where she is like, I thought Mickey was supposed to be dead. And Debbie Debbie Salt turns around and she whaps her in the head with a bottle and then right, is able to get right. behind get behind stage, shut the door. You get some wild shots of <laughs> of, of Lori Metcalf shouldering this door as hard as she can in a quick successions. Um, and Sydney is just using this to her full advantage. She is chopping, she gets the fire axe and starts chopping the ropes to all of the lighting and the the props. I love this, but see, 
she couldn't have done that if we didn't establish that she knew her way around backstage because she's an actress. But also this kind of, this moment actually reminds me of like Wizard of Oz where like Dorothy has now become the man behind the curtain pulling all the strings. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with that analogy, but it's working for me here. I do. If I have any complaints about anything to do with the theater aspect earlier in the film, I toss it all aside here for this final moment where Sydney takes like full charge of the situation and starts fucking with all the lighting cues and everything. The thunder. She's like making the thunder clap. And she's like, you know, she's really trying to like throw one Debbie Salt like for a loop. And like Debbie Salt is just overwhelmed she's trying to climb set pieces she's trying to avoid falling lights she's screaming she's cowering in corners she's getting knocked off of shit and it is like very climactic like one thing this movie does well is it builds and it builds and it builds much like the original film like they kind they clearly had to like kind of outdo that aspect of the original movie the final third of the film is just one big fucking climax. So this had to do it right as well. And I will say when it does land on its feet here, it makes for a great finale. So, yeah, there's this moment where Sydney is able to, or Debbie sells, yeah, she's climbing up the set piece and all of the, the rocks, the, the fake boulders tumble on top of her and like bury her on the stage under the stage. And uh, I, you know, I was like, okay, these are just like, styrofoam rocks they're not gonna like kill her or anything and sure enough as, as sydney is kind of walking down the hallway to exit the uh the stage mrs loomis jumps out from the side of the stage and grabs her and they are able to engage in a battle to the point where debbie gets on top of sydney and is trying to stab her and is almost succeeding until cotton weary shows up with the gun and is like what the fuck is going on here Right, and we got this beautifully deranged moment where Debbie is behind Sydney with a knife at her throat, being like, "She sent you to prison for a year." I love that, and trying to like do some emotional warfare on him so that they can be in cahoots together. And let me just let me kill her. Let me kill her. Right, she's so delicious in this moment. Oh, I love it so much. You're the star. Like she's, <laughs> she is really like trying to manipulate the situation. And sometimes in films, like I don't buy this from a character where they're like trying to like, you know, desperation plea, like you got to listen to me. I know what to do. We're going to make it seem like she's the crazy one. Like she sells it. Like I, if I was cotton, I would almost be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to listen to the crazy bitch because she's selling me a pitch right Charisma. she has some but this is the mark of a good villain it's like you know they got some good points and there for a moment you think cotton may actually be as as deep into what yeah and i can still not tell if for sure if there's part of me that thinks that up into that very last second that he is thinking about it she's personally i think it's very poetic like you know and you see him kind of like hearing these things that she's saying i don't know 100 percent if this is all part of his plan i think that part of cotton is like hmm maybe maybe i think i got that too i think that cotton maybe was considering because as we find out he you know as he was 
as it was revealed earlier, he is just all about his his 15 minutes of fame because he feels like he's owed it. So I feel like he at this point, he doesn't really have any. Uh, why would he have an allegiance to Sydney? She's the one that put him away. You know, uh, I think he was really just looking for whatever was going to be the best deal for him. And it just so happens that when he mentions that Diane Sawyer interview to Sydney, he's like, I bet you that Diane, Diane Sawyer interview is looking good right about now. And she looks at him and she's like, consider it done. Well, that's that's what he wanted. That was that's his goal throughout the whole film is he knows that getting on Diane Sawyer and being able to tell his story is going to open up a plethora of opportunities for him, which it does, apparently, because he has his own show in Scream 3. Um, so I, I really think it was he would have done whatever he thought was going to benefit him the most. And it just so happened that Sydney said the right thing at the right time. And he ends up shooting. Well, I like the fact that we're not 100% sure who he shoots. Uh, he fires the gun and they both fly back and they're laying there silent for a moment. And you're like, oh shit, who did he shoot? Until Sydney starts coughing and gets up to reveal that he did shoot Debbie Salt. And she's laying there very much dead. We also get Gail popping up from the orchestra pit. Right. This is, this is a trend in the movies that finally I put together. Every third act, they have to like, put Gail in a timeout by pretending that she's dead or uh, harmed and is away from the action to just let Sydney handle it. And then she comes back at the end being like, Oh, okay, you got it. Great. I don't love that. I want, you know, maybe in this next movie, Gail to be more in the action. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's also a trend. I think every film Gail has got shot in the exact same spot. <laughs> she's collecting bullets. But she comes out of the pit. I like when Cotton's picking her out of the pit. He's like, there's nobody else down there, is there? <laughs> um, and as they are, you know, as they're sitting there, you know, in awe of what happened, they're looking at Debbie Salt. They're like, is she dead? And Sydney's like, I think so. And she says, well, you know, they always come back one more, one last time. And of course, it's Mickey that pops up. Right. What a scare, though. Oh, my God. To this day, I was like, oh. Really? Like, I jumped oh, up out I of my seat. I thought that was so cheesy. Like, I for, I, oh, my the God. The way he jumps I up prepared. is super cheesy. It's like, right, right. It, like, it yeah. looks cheesy, but it's just everyone's reactions and everything. I was like, oh, God. Like, I forgot, I forgot it was coming. Well, and they, her and her and uh, or Sid and Gail blow the fuck out of him. <laughs> I do like it's just those two broads, each with a fucking pistol, just firing a wave of bullets at that guy. Like he had no, he stood no chance. And then for Sydney, in like you know, in fitting form, especially after the first movie, for her to turn around and just in case put a bullet in who in Debbie Salt's forehead, who is definitely dead, but who fucking cares? Just in case, like it is a, a beautiful conclusion. Right? She's so calm about it. It's so uh, exciting and terrifying she's like hmm, might as well might yeah, as well she's very calm she just blows shoots debbie salt in the forehead and then they all leisurely leave the uh the theater yeah the theater and all the cops are there and everything and of course when sydney is outside she's getting approached by all of the the journalists who want to you know get the story and sydney very graciously says to them cotton is the man you want to talk to he is the hero here nice little gesture so all of the journalists flock to cotton and as they're walking to the ambulance we do hear we got a live one here and it's fucking dewey 
Uh, Let him die. Well, I do. They, I'm Again. like, come on. But they do. The, the one paramedic, as he's putting Dewey in the back of the ambulance, he's like, oh, all that scar tissue saved your life. God, I don't fucking buy it at all. Like, let the man die. He looks so bloodied and beaten and bruised. Like, if anything, at this point, it's just sad. One thing I do like, though, is that Gail, like, is about to go on and do a report, and then she sees him getting wheeled out, and she she drops the microphone and runs to him. And I think that's a sign of evolution in Gail, because she's always someone who's pri- always prioritizing her career. And here she prioritizes Dewey, as she should, because he fucking loves the fuck out of her. Uh, and she she gets in the ambulance, she drives away, and she leaves Joel to take over on the report. So I thought that was a, like a nice sign of, of the fact that she has grown as a human. And yeah, and that's basically the end of the film. We get a nice uh, aerial shot of uh, Sydney walking away, and... That's that's Scream 2, two, two hours later. As whom I assume is Matchbox 20 uh, coming up over... Uh, oh, <laughs> bitch, bitch, no. Okay, it's Collective it's, Soul. Don't get it twisted. the Matchbox 20 fucking song I've ever heard. But uh, And that fucking like aerial shot. Yeah. You're not <laughs> wrong. she's like walking across the campus. You know what? One thing I'll say about the way this movie ends is it definitely left me wanting to know more. Like, what a better... Uh, what better way to <laughs> conclude this film and leave me like excited for a third entry to until the franchise. I, until I saw the third entry. You know, say what you fucking want about Ooh. that goddamn third entry. If Parker Posey is in, is in anything, I'm going to fucking watch it. So there are positive elements to the third entry, but that's set for another episode, Troy. That is. But that is Scream 2. We did it. This is our longest episode to date. We did it in two hours and I, 54 minutes. I don't know disgusting. if that's a good thing or a bad thing. People but are going to be so mad at us. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's going to oh be a thing. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm literally so, just sitting here like bags under my eyes. <laughs> yeah, we better wrap it up. Uh, that's Scream 2. I, I still personally going through it. You know, I, you guys did enlighten me to some, some of the issues the film had that I haven't really thought of before. But I still maintain that it is my favorite of the Scream films. And I still disagree pleasantly. And in support of your decision, I still say I prefer the first one. Though this is a close, close second, I will say. Uh, Probably overall in the the scale of horror sequels, I I can't think of many movies that follow... follow a movie up with a second title and manage to maintain such a quality. Uh, This movie is entertaining beginning to fucking end. The characters are just as riveting as they were in the first film. You get to learn so much more about them. You lose some of them. It keeps you on your toes and you're treated to some phenomenal fucking chase scenes. What more could you want from a slasher? Precisely. Precisely. Yes, it's good. It's a good movie. <laughs> Tyler exhausted. He's just sitting there. I'm exhausted. I'm head so on the full desk. Of passion and joy. Uh, it was great to revisit this movie today to talk with you all. Yeah, well, Tyler, we thank you for giving up such a huge chunk of your time to discuss. Clearly, <laughs> a fourth of your a fourth week. Fourth of your week. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you have no idea. Uh, oh but god. we appreciate but it. Truly, we truly yeah. appreciate it. This will be a fun one. So, and I'm sure. I'll, our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. Yes, absolutely. And in closing, Tyler, uh, you know, giving you a platform at, at least to wrap things up nicely and with a big flamboyantly gay bow, tell us what we can expect to see from you coming up here soon. And let us let our fans know where they can stalk you on social media. 
Oh my God, come find me, come find me. Um, I didn't mention this, but like I just made a music video where I got to recreate the opening of Scream 2 in a movie theater full of people wearing masks, killing the main artist. And you should definitely go find We're that. We're sharing that. If you enjoyed this conversation. It's called uh, Quiet Films by Bright Light, Bright Light. And I even recreated Heather Graham's movie within a movie for this particular moment. And I'm very proud of it. You should go check that out. Are you out. saying that you played um, Heather Graham in that moment? Were you Heather Graham? No, I I, I wrote okay. it. I directed it. I oh, gotcha. It, I edited it. Okay. But you were not the Heather Graham-esque figure. Just checking. No, no. But we had so much fun on that. That's Angelica Torres and Rod playing the... I don't know if you're familiar with the drag queen Dina Martina, but it's inspired by that. If that was a scream killer. Um, but clearly the sounds of silence means that you probably don't know who that is. But if you search her, you will have a great, great time. Um, on top of that, I got to work with the Monster Makeup Boys who did Death Drop Gorgeous on their new movie, St. Drogo, which is hopefully wrapping up soon. Very excited about that. I've been editing a queer horror pilot, which is hopefully going to wrap soon, and a lot of fun stuff. I'm, you know, me and Roman are planning a bunch of stuff coming forward. I have made it my mission to create a whole calendar worth of queer horror holiday movies, and they're not the ones you expect. You got a lot on your big gay plate. It's so big, it's so gay, <laughs> and you can follow The Madness uh, on TikTok, on Instagram, uh, Tyler Kinesis, which is like telekinesis, but my name, and my website, typicalfilms.com. Well, make sure you put one Mrs. Claus on your holiday Ooh, horror yes. list. Well, see, it's, it's gay holidays. There's a gay character in Mrs. Claus. His name's Tyler, no, I actually. No, no. I'm saying holidays that are unique to gay people. Oh, What's an example oh, of one oh, of those? Oh, unique to gay people. Yeah, I well, know what that would be. First of all, if it's March, it would be award season holiday horror. If it's May, it's Fleet Week. If it's <laughs> if it's July, it's Bear Week. Okay? There's a Bear like, Week in July? It's I'm, oh in Provincetown. I've never, never been, been no, and I somewhat of a bear, I suppose. So I and my birthday's in July. Even if you're not a bear, I'm missing out on everything. Ooh, bear week in Provincetown is okay, the place. Well, to I be. know where I'm going. <laughs> so yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like the normal um, okay holidays. It would be I all new you. holidays well. that. Gay people would recognize, and straight people would be like, "Huh?" Well, just throw okay. Just throw Mrs. Claus in there as the mascot. Just oh, yeah. let's get it. <laughs> Troy, Troy is really fishing for it. He's like, get her in there. I'll put That's on the all a good night. <laughs> she'll she'll be my Carrie Fisher in uh, Sorority. <laughs> oh my god, one of my favorite cameos. Oh, I love get away it. from my girls. <laughs> <laughs> Give me Carrie Fisher with a shotgun any day of the week. Always welcome here at Dark right? She can carry a gun. Yeah. I think only women should be allowed to have guns. I agree. I said it. I, agree. I said it. I agree. Well, now I know what title we're going to have you back for, but I already feel like there's four other gays <laughs> who have claimed Sorority Row because it's the the gayest slasher ever. <laughs> right. Without 
without any actual gay people in it, right? Other than maybe Lucian Pine on the soundtrack. I'm sure some of those frat boys have. Oh my God. I have a story for off camera about Sorority Road that I. Oh. (laughs) We'll tell you later. I can't wait. That'll be included as bonus material. (laughs) On that note, Tyler, thank you so much for coming out for this very lengthy episode. But I really feel if any movie was going to get a three hour long episode, Jesus Christ, it really is. Um, (laughs) It's Scream 2 because I knew this was a big one coming. I knew Troy had a lot of thoughts and feelings. And I feel like we all got to share how we felt on this title. And it's all thanks to you, Tyler, being the one to spawn it. So thank you so much. I am. I am honored that you allowed me to tackle one of the greats and that we had such a great time talking about this fantastic movie. Absolutely. Thank you, thank you. And with that, we will end this at three fucking hours. Whew. Okay. Clip, I'm worth clip, it. Clip, clip right. here, clip, clip oh, there. I'm, I'm, right. Just it away. All right, listeners. Good night. We, we, we hope you enjoyed the three hours, though. I know it probably took you a couple of listens to get through, but hey, here you are. Good night. Good night. Good night.